2007, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a document called the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. This was a document that had been in the works for a long time, uh, was the product of uh, hard effort by many, many people. Uh, and it, for the first time, uh, in, a, in a global sense, uh, recognized the collective rights of the indigenous peoples of the world. Lots of countries, uh, in consequence of their signing on to the declaration, have started <clears throat> looking into uh, how to create domestic legal regimes that recognize the collective rights of indigenous peoples within their territorial uh, limits. Uh, and countries which have had such regimes have been encouraged to uh, do things to make them more consonant with the provisions of the Declaration. One of those latter countries is the United States, which <clears throat> has had uh, uh, a legal regime recognizing collective rights of indigenous peoples since the beginning, uh, as evidenced by uh, or experienced through treaties between the United States and Indian nations, uh, dating right back to the first years of the Republic and, and beyond into the British uh, colonial era, uh, the United States uh, has seen indigenous uh, Native Indian, Native American uh, political communities as being legally separate uh, and as recognizing, or as exercising rather, uh, inherent sovereign power, uh, which is to say power that hasn't been delegated to them by the United States, but the same sovereign political power that they've exercised since before Europeans arrived in the continent. And that's the way U.S. law sees this issue and always has seen this issue. There have been fluctuations in policy uh, over the years between uh, in, in uh, sort of further uh, support for separate uh, tribal sovereignty and uh, a desire to assimilate individual tribal members into the broader political community. Uh, that's a different topic, the fluctuations in policy, but since the late 1960s, uh, early 1970s, the U.S. has been fairly well settled in a policy of encouraging uh, tribal sovereignty, uh, encouraging tribal self-government. Now, the principal agent for the creation uh, and uh, exercise of uh, this policy is the U.S. Congress and the U.S. executive, which is to say the political branches of government, but that doesn't mean the court hasn't been involved. And in fact, the Supreme Court from the beginning uh, has been very uh, closely tied to uh, the, the creation of, uh, the process of creation of a policy governing the relationship between the United States and the native peoples uh, who occupy lands within uh, the territorial limits of the United States. Uh, so we have three separate sovereigns. Uh, and which is to say the, the federal government, the state governments, and the tribal governments, and we have multiple players within the federal system in, engaged in helping to define from the, from the federal government side what the, what the boundaries of this uh, relationship are. Now, the Supreme Court's role is what I'm going to focus on in this lecture and in two subsequent lectures. Uh, and I, what I want to talk about are, are three cases that uh, were foundational uh, in defining the, the framework within which the United States would operate when relating to uh, sovereign Indian nations in the United States. Uh, these three cases were all decided by the, the Marshall Court. Uh, they, the uh, opinions that we look to in each of these uh, 
uh, were authored by Chief Justice Marshall himself. And so uh, for these reasons, we call them the Marshall Trilogy. The first of these cases is the case of Johnson versus McIntosh, decided in 1823. The second is the case of Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, decided in 1831. And the, th the third and last is the case of Worcester versus Georgia, decided in 1832. Those latter two cases are going to be the subjects of different uh, separate lectures. Uh, but I want to talk now about the first and earliest of these cases, uh, which is the case of Johnson versus McIntosh. Now, <clears throat> Johnson versus McIntosh uh, was a land claim uh, prosecuted by a group of land speculators who were called collectively the United Illinois and Wabash Land Companies. Uh, one of their shareholders was Johnson, uh, Thomas Johnson, who had been the governor of Maryland during the Confederation period and briefly an associate justice of the Supreme Court. He died uh, in the early stages of the litigation as the case was being put together and his place was taken by his two heirs, one of whom was also named Johnson, so we still have Johnson versus McIntosh. Uh, McIntosh I'll tell you about um, momentarily. The, uh, the land claim uh, arose uh, in uh, 1773 and 1775 when speculators from Philadelphia and Baltimore sent agents out to what would become the states of Indiana and Illinois to see if they couldn't buy some land from Indians. Uh, and they ended up finding uh, two groups, the Piankashaws on the Wabash River and various of the Illinois nations uh, who were willing to uh, enter into treaty relations with the speculators uh, under which a vast amount of land uh, was transferred uh, to the speculators. And these were two separate transactions. As I mentioned, one in 1773 and 1775. These purchases were, were illegal. They were affected uh, in violation of a British Crown proclamation in, uh, that had been issued in 1763 uh, in which the King of England said, no one can buy land from Indians west of the Allegheny Mountains without my permission. And these guys had no Crown permission, yet they went out and did it, uh, did it anyway. Uh, so it was a clear violation uh, the, uh, the local garrison commander allowed them to, although he was somewhat suspicious, because they produced to him what purported to be a legal opinion of the top legal advisors to the King of England, uh, Lord uh, Camden uh, and, uh, and York, and which, so we call it the Camden-York opinion, uh, which seemed to suggest that the proclamation had been repealed. Um, but in fact, what they had done was to take an older proclamation and edit it strategically so it made it look like the proclamation had been repealed. It was a legal opinion that had removed restrictions on individual purchases of land in India, not from the Indians. <laughs> and so a little bit of artful editing took care of that problem. And the, uh, uh, so the, the, the garrison commander allowed them to go ahead and, and make the purchase. But there, was, uh, but there was concern about it, and, 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 and communications went back to London. Uh, can, can they really do this? Uh, the reason that the king had prohibited purchase from the Indians is he, he wanted to avoid war on the frontier. They just finished fighting the French and the Indians. Uh, there was a lot of anxiety that individuals would go out and abuse 
Indians and land transactions, and suddenly we'd have a, another war in North America on our hands. Uh, and consistently, the British officials who responded said, "No, they they can't they can't do this. This is this, and we can't believe this legal opinion was actually issued by these guys. We'll take a look and see." Now, mind the dates again: 1773 and 1775. There are other things going on here. Then uh, the uh, uh, Battle of Lexington, dumping of tea into Boston Harbor. Uh, and the uh, convening of a, of a Continental Congress, which in 1776 will declare independence. So the Crown's fairly distracted. Uh, and these, uh, the consequence for these land purchasers is uh, they sort of get away with this, although they have no recognition uh, by any official of their, uh, of their title to these lands. So the land company... Uh, with a non-denied claim and revolution in the air, decided that if the British weren't going to recognize their title, there were other places they could go. Uh, so they went to Philadelphia. They went to the Virginia Revolutionary Convention. Uh, and they started lobbying because they wanted somebody to say, somebody in a position of authority, yes, you own this land. Because then they were off and running. They could sell it, they could settle it, they could do whatever they wanted to with it. But no one would do that. And years passed. Uh, they never got official recognition from any body with authority to do that. On the other hand, they never got denied by anybody with the authority uh, in the legislative uh, branch to do that. Uh, the Confederation, the war ended, the Confederation ended, the Constitution's adopted, a new government comes in, and every few years, there they are, the United Illinois and Wabash Land Companies petitioning some house of the federal legislature for recognition of title. This went on for 50 years until finally they came up with another idea, which is let's file a lawsuit. Now, that hadn't been possible before. Uh, in a sense, because while there were courts out in the area where the lands were, they were territorial courts, and appeals couldn't be taken from them to the Supreme Court. And what they really wanted was the Supreme Court to say that they owned these lands. So they had to wait until a federal, regular federal court was created in Illinois, in Indiana, uh, after those areas, former territories, became states. And then they, they could and did file a lawsuit uh, and in the hopes that they could adjudicate it at the trial court level, take it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court would say, yes, you win. And that's the case of Johnson versus McIntosh. Now, Johnson, I mentioned, was uh, a shareholder. He dies. His heirs take his place as, as plaintiff. Uh, McIntosh uh, is one of the great unsung, interesting characters of the early Republican period. He was a British immigrant. So he was from Scotland. Uh, soldier in the British Army during the Revolutionary War decided to stay. Uh, became something of a big deal in the Indiana Territory. He was briefly treasurer of the Indiana Territory, a land speculator uh, with William Henry Harrison, who was the territorial governor and later our shortest serving president. And, uh, but he, he was very independent. Uh, he took issue with the governor over a number of things, one of which was the way he treated Indians in treaty negotiations. He went public with this and uh, was sued for libel. Uh, he said that Harrison had been mistreating and abusing the tribes uh, in treaty negotiations, and he lost the libel suit, uh, and that practically bankrupted him. He, uh, he also married, at a certain point, a woman who was later alleged to be an escaped slave from Virginia, 
uh, an African-American woman named Lydia, who, based on the existing court record, was every bit as independent as McIntosh. I went through the court files, and she was a criminal defendant multiple times, usually for battery. Um, evidently, she may have had a short temper and a hard fist. Uh, but in any event, as a consequence of all of this, McIntosh and his family moved south, uh, abandoned the good citizens of Vincennes, which was the capital uh, at the time, and set up shop. When the company went looking for a willing defendant, they found McIntosh, and he uh, evidently uh, was only too happy to cooperate in a lawsuit that would upend the land titles, potentially, of all of the citizens uh, who, uh, for, of the territory, or many of them, who had been uh, abusing him over the years. So, so they arranged uh, what we would call, in legal terms, a collusive lawsuit uh, in which the, the company identified uh, all of the grounds of, factual grounds of objection that had ever been raised against the Illinois and Wabash claims, and uh, McIntosh stipulated them all away. Uh, these included things like, you bought from the wrong Indians. No, we didn't, McIntosh says. No, they didn't. Uh, you didn't pay them enough. Yes, we did, McIntyre says. Yes, they did. So all of these things being stipulated, the court was powerless to overturn them. These were agreed between the parties. And that left only one issue for resolution in the federal court action, which was, were these barred, these purchases, by the proclamation of 1763? Now, almost certainly they were. And it would have been hard to imagine how... Uh, the land companies could have been found to have complied with the requirements of the proclamation. So the argument became the proclamation itself was unconstitutional under the British Constitution. That the king didn't have the power to tell people they couldn't buy land from Indians. Parliament might have done that, but the king didn't have power to. And that was it. That was the case of Johnson versus McIntosh. Was the proclamation of 1763 constitutional under the British Constitution? <coughs> And that case went to the Supreme Court. It was heard in 1823. The companies were represented before the Supreme Court by Robert Goodloe Harper, and, uh, who was a regular advocate before the Supreme Court and has his own story, uh, and Daniel Webster, uh, of whom you'll have heard. It was represented, uh, or the, the McIntosh's side uh, was also uh, represented. Uh, by two folks of whom you, you may never have heard. One was uh, William Winder, uh, who is best remembered as the military commander who led the rout uh, at the Battle of Bladensburg when the British showed up uh, during the War of 1812, uh, which enabled them to then walk in and burn the national capital. Um, so he wasn't very fondly <laughs> remembered, but he was, a, he was a regular Supreme Court advocate. And then an, a young guy named William Murray, who died soon after in a steamboat accident, uh, on Chesapeake Bay and disappeared from history. Um, the fact that, that they aren't very well known is, is maybe interesting. Um, more important, maybe, uh, the fact that, uh, that they were paid by the Illinois and Wabash Land Companies. Uh, so both sides are, are paid by the, by the, the, uh, the plaintiffs in the underlying action. Uh, they've got one issue because there's been uh, collusion in the creation of the, uh, of the, the uh, stipulation facts, uh, and the companies feeling pretty good. Uh, and despite all that, they lose. Uh, 1823, the case gets called in February. Uh, the court gets it. Uh, at least one of the justices is a little concerned at, at what's going on. There's word on the street that there's been collusion in this lawsuit, and in the end, 
the court issues an opinion <clears throat> that finds that actually the, the proclamation of 1763 was a valid bar to these purchases. That's included in about a paragraph deep into the opinion. And then over the course of about 20 pages, the court creates something or adopts into American law something that we've come to call the discovery doctrine. And the discovery doctrine says, you know, the proclamation, okay, that's a ground for denying these claims, but there's another ground. And, and here's what it is. What did Europeans acquire? What did native peoples lose upon the discovery of the new world? It isn't expressed this way, but you, you have a picture in your mind, I imagine many, many of you will, of, of a European uh, arriving on a beach and planting a flag and saying, I claim this land in the name of, and then whatever the European sovereign. What did that mean as a matter of law? And that's the question that the court decides it's going to answer in Johnson versus McIntosh. The discovery doctrine says that upon discovery of the new world, the discovering European sovereign instantly acquired ownership of the underlying title to all discovered lands. And the question then is, so the tribes lose ownership of their lands, they retain a right to occupy them, and they can sell that right, but only to the same discovering European sovereign. That rule, that discovery rule, it, it may surprise you, to, is still the law that outside of a few tribes, including the five tribes in eastern Oklahoma, tribes and the Pueblos, uh, the, the tribes, those are the exceptions, the tribes uh, in the US do not own their land. The United States owns the underlying title to tribal land. The tribes own an occupancy right to those lands. And they can sell it, but they can only sell it to the United States government, which is the successor in interest to the British crown. The, uh, this rule, uh, I think in part because we developed it so early and it was in an opinion authored by Chief Justice Marshall, we have exported throughout the English-speaking world to other countries where there were indigenous populations when the English arrived. So it's the basis for the Aboriginal property rights rule uh, in Australia, for the Maori land rights rule in New Zealand. Uh, it's the basis for Mayan land rights in Belize. Uh, and for uh, First Nations land rights in Canada. Uh, it's, um, there's also some suggestion, people have told me, I haven't looked into it, that it's, it's, it's part of the basis for tribal rights in South Africa as well, uh, and in Uganda, uh, and maybe in other parts of the, it would surprise me if it weren't virtually universal throughout the English-speaking world. Now, um, wh where, did this, where did this come from? Um, it is a separate ground. The way it got applied to the land speculators was by the court saying, well, so um, since the United States owned the underlying title, they couldn't sell that to you. They could only have sold you the occupancy right, but the occupancy right can only be sold to the United States. So even without the proclamation of 1763, this purchase was invalid. They had nothing that they could sell to you, the land speculators. The, as I was, th this all became the subject of, um, of my first book, and, and as I was researching it, I, I, I had to ask myself at this point, having seen the litigation history, why all this was there? Why is there 20 pages of the Discovery Doctrine when all they really wanted was a resolution of the Proclamation of 1763 argument? And, and that turned out to be a, a very complex story involving 
uh, politics, revolutionary war veterans, issues of federalism, et cetera. Uh, to summarize it very briefly, um, <clears throat> the, uh, the, what, there was a contemporaneous issue uh, that the court was, was interested in resolving. The state of Virginia, in order to uh, fund its own revolutionary uh, militia during the, during the revolution, had promised veterans land out in what was then the far western Virginia. Uh, if you serve, we can't pay you because we have no money, but if you're a private, we'll give you this many acres. If you're a captain, we'll give you more, you know, if you serve for this period of time. And all the landed states did this. And so, uh, but eventually those, and so they, they made these promises. When the war was done, the militia uh, picked some representatives or the legislature appointed them, and they went out to far southwestern Virginia to start surveying these lands. Turns out, there was somebody else living there. The Chickasaw Nation was living there because they were Chickasaw lands, and the Chickasaws chased them out. And the state of Virginia said, oh, well, sorry, we'll, we'll come back later when you all are gone. That took a long time. And before it happened, uh, Kentucky became a separate state pursuant to arrangement with the state of Virginia. Kentucky County separated and became a separate state. These lands aren't in Virginia after 1792. They're in Kentucky. And Kentucky wanted them. So the dispute that was percolating in 1823, while Johnson was coming up, was who, who owns these lands? Or do they belong to the Virginia militia holders who had some claim to them based on promises from Virginia, or do they belong to the state of Kentucky after the Chickasaws remove? And the Chickasaws ceded them in 1818. So this becomes a, it's a live issue from 1818 until 1823, then they're trying to figure out exactly what to do. Well, what one of the principal grounds against the claims hey, of Virginia everybody. is that Virginia had no real property interest. Good in afternoon, everybody, or morning, or wherever, whatever time it is, wherever the hell you are. So and today so is a very fast. special episode. Stop the video. Yeah, I just did. Sorry. So today is a very special episode because uh, today we not only have uh, Rick, who's been on the show before, he'll be on it a little later, Rick but we also have uh, Plants Fanon is joining us today. Are, are you with us, Plant? Hey, how's it going, guys? Yep, I'm here. Not bad. How's it going? Thanks for coming on. So, uh, you know, maybe I'll do, just do the Subversive History intro real yeah. quick. Subversive History is a multimedia community project seeking to bring attention to the revolutionary struggles of the world's often unsung and frequently misunderstood sectors. These are the stories of the demonized, vilified, whitewashed, or otherwise forgotten campaigns against imperialism, colonialism, capitalist exploitation, and racial apartheid. The orthodoxy of Western hegemony has often labeled these dissidents as subversive, and these are the struggles we aim to illuminate. I just want to give a quick shout out to Ross. Thank you so much for, you know, the uh, gifted subs. And Ross, uh, thank you so much for the sub. Derek, if, uh, you know, uh, I'm sorry. Do you prefer plants? Oh, it's fine. You can, yeah, Derek is fine. Okay. I'm sorry. that I, I read it and it's like one of those things where it's like the, the brain barrier kind of left. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, that that's fine. Yeah, I, uh, I go by my first name. It's fine. Okay. Either way, would you uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Derek. Um, yeah, I'm just a uh, uh, I'm a 
cannabis breeder and cultivator and a communist. And that's about it. Based. Based. So we've had, obviously we've had uh, Rick, Rick on here before, um, you know, of the decolonized Buffalo podcast. Um, I think some of our audience is from pretty familiar with him. Do you, do you, and I know that I'm more familiar with him. I'm not um, super familiar. Do you, do you have like um, projects of your own on the online space? Uh, I am, I'm now a host on, on Rick's podcast. We're planning a few, uh, some new series and some new episodes. Uh, yeah. And that's a, uh, that's, that's yeah, what I'm doing as far as uh, my educating and and agitating. Um, yeah, that's awesome. That, that's what I've got going on on is, on the spaces online. Is there anywhere for like anybody that might be interested in following you, where uh, they might want to get in touch and uh, and like give you a follow, just in case you're posting any updates about what you got going on? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. Is a uh, plants underscore fanon like plants as in like the uh, you know category of organisms. Uh, <laughs> and, and, um, and yeah, you can you can uh, read my deranged tweets on there and and uh, hey, otherwise I like listen to deranged. Me yeah, and I, I I think I speak for all of us over here at Subversive History that we are a fan of deranged tweets. So um, keep that coming. Awesome. Yeah, and yeah, you can. Uh, otherwise, you can listen to me on the. Uh, Rick's podcast on um, on decolonized buffalo. Uh, we'll, we'll, we have a bunch of uh, content in the works coming to you guys. Awesome. Yeah, I've heard some of your episodes uh, with him. I think you've co-hosted with the the one, but then there's uh, another where it's uh, a panel of people, and I believe one of those uh, people might be in chat right now. But uh, you know, I really liked it. And um, oh, I'm sorry. Can please continue. Oh no! I was just gonna say thank you. Uh, the, the, and yeah, was, I've been on three episodes. Uh, we did a we did an interview with Dr. Horn, um, which is great. I had like a couple questions that I had been wanting to ask him about, get some clarity on, and he uh, set me on a a few good uh, pathways of, of research. And uh, and I've just been digging into his work. And other than that, yeah, we had a couple episodes. One was kind of an introductory one with me for just uh, to d- introduce me as a host and. And uh, the other one is uh, we had a, a cool panel with a bunch of indigenous comrades. Um, I myself, I, I guess I could give you my background. I'm a black descendant of slavery and uh, descendant of slaves. Um, you know, it's one half of my family. And then uh, I'm also um, Chamorro and Irish Chamorro being uh, indigenous to the island of Guam. Uh, gotcha. Col- uh, colonial, colonially occupied by the United States, as many Correct. may know. Um, uh, also, um, sorry, uh, Johnny, can you, can you bring this like video off? Yeah. 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 Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Cool. Should, should, um, should plants have like a, a square in here or since he's I, audio only, does that just not, they just don't, I think because he's audio only, okay, he's not that's fine. That's square. I, I just didn't know if like he was being excluded for some reason, um, like a technical reason, but, um, I think that, uh, we did get an update from Rick. Um, he has a little bit of a um, familial responsibility he's taking care of and should be on in a few minutes. So we don't want to crack open the book just yet and let that start getting away from us until Rick gets here. Um, so right now we're just kind of um, having a little bit of small talk, getting to know plants a little bit. And um, Rick should be on in the next like 15 minutes or so. Right, Johnny? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll be fine. Okay, cool. Um, how was your day, Johnny? It's going all right. It's uh, I've I've been up since like five o'clock in the morning. Uh, I had to go to a certain prison in New Jersey to go meet with a client. So 
you know, that's always the daily grind. The daily grind. Dude, I don't have any heat in my house right now. Can I can I just bitch about a landlord for a second? Do I have the sympathetic <laughs> ear of my chat to 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 criticize my landlord? Um so our stove broke what January. Well, it's not the stove, it's the oven. We can use the burners, but the oven doesn't work. And um, so we put a ticket into the property management company and it on like January 23rd and they just came last week on Friday to, they brought us a new whole new range. Um, they put it in there and within 15 minutes, we're like, man, this smells like gas. It smells like gas down here. <laughs> and we were like, yeah, maybe, you know, um, maybe, um, maybe just cause they were switching it or something like that. A little gas got out. Let's check that. We checked the burners, make sure none of them were on. And then we opened up the window to air out the room a little bit. I came down like an hour later. I was about to leave the house and I was like, it, I'm in my living room and I'm like, Oh, it smells like gas again. So my girlfriend puts in another ticket to the property management company. And they're like, you got to contact PGW, which is the Philadelphia gas company. And I'm like, what do you mean? I have to, I have to contact PGW. You just sent somebody to my house to install this <laughs> thing. Like, it's not like a break in their gas line. You, right. somebody installed this thing wrong. So then they're like, you got to contact PGW. We contact PGW. They come out to my house and turn off my gas, turn off my gas entirely. And I have gas heat. It's been the coldest, like two nights of the winter, the past few days. It's been like 32 degrees. Yeah. We haven't had, we haven't had heat for two days. That's, that's horrible. Um, and they send somebody over today. The guy pretty much just looked at it. And is like, I got to come back tomorrow. So it's like, they send somebody to my house because of a broken stove. It fucks it up, puts a bunch of gas in my house. And now I don't have heat because they told me to have PGW come over. So um, right now we're here from the rent. It's like 64 degrees in my house. L luckily it's, uh, you know, insulated decently that we, it hasn't dropped too low, but it's definitely chillier than we prefer it. I I'm shocked that you're committed to the bit of wearing a dress shirt for every single stream and not wearing like a hoodie right now. I wore my, I wore my bastard <laughs> shirt. I, I did wear a bastard shirt last time, the Japanese hardcore band yeah. bastard. So I, I break the, I break the continuity every now and then. I also need to get some new dress shirts because I think I'm like wearing out my very My very, like the four of them that I own. <laughs> so I got to, I got to uh, feel free to subscribe or donate to get me a couple new uh, dress shirts. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you're doing it, but where where are you guys? If you don't mind me asking, uh, what what region of the of the country? I'm in the, Philadelphia. Oh I mean, yeah, it's cold there, huh? It's cold yeah. here. I'm a little north of you in uh, Boston area. Okay, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're getting like blizzard right now, right? Uh, I'm on the coast, so it's actually, uh, yeah, we got like a little dusting last night, but it's nice, nice that being right on the coast, it stays uh, a little little warmer than it does inland. Wow, because right. when I lived uh, on the coast, uh, I live in Jersey. I'm very elusive about like, you know, where the fuck I live. He's, <laughs> he's vaguely, he vaguely refers to the third smallest state in the country as his... Uh... As, as as where he lives so somewhere the greatest state, state in the union all right new jersey i live all right i'll i'll, I'll get, i don't live in north jersey or south jersey anymore which means but... you lived in north jersey <laughs> no i don't you live in from south jersey the answer to that question is that there's only there's only south jersey and north jersey i i live in the part of jersey where uh they don't refer to it as taylor ham and there's eagles merch in every gas station that's the good part of jersey <laughs> that's the type of jersey that i come from um so you're so you're up in the boston area 
Um, is that like your general area of origin or is it, have you, did you transplant there? Yeah, uh, I, uh, I guess, yeah, a little of my background, I've, I've been all over the place. I've been very bi-coastal my whole whole life, kind of between here and uh, the Pacific Northwest a lot. Whoa. So, um, yeah, so just kind of all over the place. I was born in Boston, though, and I'd say probably most of my life has been here uh, in the sub-Boston area. Nice. How'd you like the Pacific Northwest? Uh, it's beautiful up there. Uh, you know, it's it, honestly not too much for me. Like I, I lived there a little bit as a kid. Um, and then I moved there. Uh, that's actually where I got my start in cannabis was, uh, I lived as a kid in Washington state in the Seattle area. Yeah. And then I, uh, got my start in cannabis, uh, outside of Portland in the, uh, in the Clackamas County, if anyone knows, or Mount Hood. Is Massachusetts the state that's legalized uh, medical? Uh, Massachusetts is full recreational now. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, okay. it's actually great uh, in terms of laws. It's like one of the best uh, cannabis, best states for cannabis laws in terms of being, uh, in terms of the ability to grow at home. And um, nice. there, there's obviously a bunch of, uh, if, if anyone knows anything about cannabis industry, it's it, there's a lot of barriers to entry as someone who'd want to like enter the industry, start their own company or something. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's, it's great for growing your own it actually has some of the highest plant count limits for, if you want to like grow at your house, if you have, uh, if you have two medical licenses, uh, you get that plus your recreational plants and you can have up to 36 plants, uh, which is oh, pretty damn. That's a I lot of plants. Couple, <laughs> I, I did a couple, uh, less than legal grows in philadelphia in the early 2010s um i wouldn't say that i actually you know was much of like i wouldn't refer to myself as a grower but i probably brought down like three or four harvests back when i was like 20 uh clandestine indoor grows in philly very cool very, uh, hell yeah that's uh it's it's harder than people make it out to be huh um, yeah, well, I mean, I had been kind of trying since I was like 17 to make something like that work. And then like, uh, I'd spent, I, when I was like, younger, I would spend a lot of time on rollitup.org and like just reading like a bunch of stuff about how to do it. And eventually I got plugged in with a couple of the right people that taught me about the right equipment to use and where to get the right seeds and stuff like that. And, uh, ended up doing a couple, couple successfuls before I cleaned my act up. This is before Pat claimed edge. Yeah. And I also, I got, I actually got arrested one time. This is just a little bit of my lore. I think in like 2010, I actually got arrested with, um, um, paraphernalia with intent to manufacture. Um, I actually got arrested with grow equipment, but with none of the actual weed, but they could tell that it was used already. So I ended up getting like para paraphernalia with intent to manufacture, uh, charge on my record from that. Yeah, they'll hit you with anything they can. Some of those, uh, some of those pigs, huh? Yep. Yeah, that was in 2010. Actually, relatively not the heaviest charge that I incurred in my uh, in my dealings with the law. It was actually, I thought it, I thought I was going to go down way harder than I did. It was actually just because it was paraphernalia with intent. They didn't actually catch me in the process. It wasn't actually that severe of a charge. Also, I was like 19 years old, so you know they weren't going to really, you know, and I was white, so you know they weren't going to crucify me too hard. Reminds me of. Uh, my 18th birthday. Have I ever told you about this, Pat? I don't know, man. I don't have all your birthday stories cataloged. I the, the, no, no, no. This is, this is my, the first time I ever got arrested was on my 18th birthday. What happened? 
I, uh, I, all right. So I'm, I'm walking to, to Duncan to go like meet up with my friend. Cause it's my birthday. And like, you of course, know, of course, uh, like we're, we're going to smoke or whatever. Right. So I got like, you know, the little, little bowl that looked like a little tadpole that like, you know, I just got like that day. Smoking some mids? like some mids, some like, you know, <laughs> sticks and stems, like, yeah. you know, fucking seeds and shit. Like, you know, like brick. All right. Yeah. So I'm walking to Duncan and like, you know, in this uh, small little suburban town, the cops have like nothing better to do. I got arrested right? in Dunkin' Donuts once. Yeah. So I'm trying to cross the street from like, you know, one block or I guess on camera, it looks like one block to the other. Right. I think we get it. Yeah. And as I'm trying to walk, like the, the cop like pulls up in between these two blocks. Right. And I'm like, go, you know, and he, he like doesn't move or anything. So I'm like, fuck this i like you know try to walk past the car and he like almost like you know hits me with the car right and then i just keep walking he's like hey come here he like hopped out of the car and was like hey come here because i have a backpack you know and he's like you know what what you got in the backpack and i'm like nothing he's like where are you going i'm like going to meet up with my friend and uh next thing you know i'm getting like i smell on you kid dude i didn't even have any pot on me like nothing all i had was a bowl that i used like one time that day right but what i forgot was when we went to the head shop that like my friend also bought like those like little little bags to like you know the little apple distri- bags to, yeah to distribute jewelry bags as, yeah. as, 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 these are called jewelry bags for the jewelry that you put inside to distribute jewelry right <laughs> and so like you know fucking uh the 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 next thing i know like you know I, i'm getting arrested he's going through my backpack and he like you know is like what oh, books and shit what is this shit you know why you got all this duct tape i'm like i don't know i make like wallets out of them yeah okay and then he finds like the bowl and like the little like brown bag with like the little apple baggies and he's like i you know i have a sixth sense about these things and i'm like are you fucking kidding me? you have a sixth sense about a legal search and seizure that's your that's your superpower sir yeah man then i was like arrested like on my 18th birthday when they were trying to put me in the system they're like oh i guess it wants like a full 24 hours of him being 18 it won't let me uh, enter him in as an adult <laughs> uh can we override this and they did you know and then i was on probation for like six months justice was served yeah no i learned nothing <laughs> Yeah, that's like the meme with the uh, you got like the six officers and like it's like the table, like some yes. small town, and like it's like their idea of a big bus, it's a couple yeah. of dime bags. Yes, like a, we're all sitting like in front of us, like another hard day of police work. We they, got they, a half ounce of marijuana. <laughs> they literally asked me, like, you know, you know, you could you might be able to to get out of this if you let us know, like, you know, uh, who who's dealing in town or something. And I'm like, I'm not doing that, yeah. And then as soon as I found out that like the little swab tests only pick up shit from like the last like three days, I was just like, oh, okay. So I just won't smoke for three days beforehand. It's, it's hilarious because they're like, they want to get you out. Like they're like, you know, it's, they, they, they're like, it's a Rico case. And it's like yeah. the king yeah. of the town, like gets like two ounces at a time and like slings eight bags. Like, like, yeah. Dude, yeah, it's hilarious. One, one time I got arrested in Philadelphia. I was like 15. I was on South Street. I was at a punk rock show. And like the bathroom was like the show. Was, there were so many people there. I couldn't get in the bathroom. So I went out into an alley. And me and my friend peed next to a dumpster in an alley. And Amazing. A, my friend pissed. And then I was in the process of pissing. And a bike cop rolled up on me, arrested a me. Bike cop? 
white cop. Since I was 15 <laughs> years old, they couldn't just give me a ticket. They had to take me to the station. So they a paddy wagon pulled up, a full paddy wagon. Oh, I thought he was going to have you ride on his pegs or something. No, like. <laughs> they take me to the South Street substation. And I swear to God, like I'm sitting there, 15 year old in the city of Philadelphia, which averages like 350 homicides a year. Um, <laughs> Uh, another cop comes in there and looks at me and goes, you know, kids live in that building. And I'm like, like, I don't know if you know about alleys in Philadelphia, like next to a building that, with a dumpster at it, but it's like, that's not exactly like, you know, there's not kids playing marbles over there. And, and yeah. shit. it's like, but they just had to like chastise me. Like, like one of the cops comes in, he's like, what's he in here for? And then they tell him, he's like, you know, kids live in that building. Like, you know, those kids, they got nothing better to do than stare at the dumpster and watch, like, you know, the, the, the homeless people do whatever it is they do back there for entertainment. And here you come along showing your dick. <laughs> yeah. As if everyone and their mother hasn't had a, uh, hasn't had an emergency pit stop in their life. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That That's actually something that's like really interesting in terms of like social, like, like, I don't know how to like civic development or dude, something. We don't, like we don't have public bathrooms. Yeah, Europe, that, Europe has them everywhere. You dude, you walk through the subways of Philadelphia and they stink like stale piss. <laughs> and sometimes there's human feces in them. And it's like, dude, don't we all kind of have a vested interest that like people should be able to use a bathroom when they want to like, like, isn't that kind of just better for everybody involved that like, you shouldn't have to like pay money to take a piss. Like you want piss on the streets or you want piss in a toilet. That's, you know, let's get this. Toilet. No, Oh, dude, no, dude. In Europe, it's a trough. It's it's like a giant steel trough. That's fine. I, yeah, I, you, know, I, you, know, you know, it's a U.S. It, policy it, to have pestilence everywhere. It's, Twenty twenty three. There's not like an adequate place for people. Like, like you have to like go like hat in hand into some like business and be like, sir, how many of my dollars do I have to give you for <laughs> your bathroom, please? Like, so I don't have to risk breaking the law behind the bush. I, I I will purchase this Snickers bar <laughs> if you let me pee in your bathroom. Let me access to your bathroom. I haven't. I've only traveled to other countries um, in South America and Asia. I've never been to Europe. But in Europe, is it customary that there's just bathrooms in cities? Do they have that? Or yeah, well, at least in like London, they do. Yes, Sebs. And and and, and in Paris, which is like yeah, the there's just like a bathroom. <laughs> If That's you need to use it, you can just do that, right? It's you're probably allowed to go into any establishment too. It's not I, I wouldn't imagine that they have the US policy of like yeah. you can't pee in the in the paywall McDonald's like, bathroom unless you, you're a paying customer. You know, you gotta yeah. get the key from the manager. Exactly. Yeah. It's like it, it seems like like feudal so futile to like have to ask the Lord to use the toilet like that. See, so for everybody that like has probably been commenting about trains or some other innocuous thing that like, you know, we need to really start taking care of in the US, I bet we start with the little stuff. A couple of bathrooms. Like, like bathrooms, laboratories. Bathrooms, and then I brought this up to people too, and they're like, "Oh, well, you know what's going to happen? It's all going to be all the all the drug addicts are going to be in the bathroom." Yeah, we're already here, anyways. So, like, what's the big fucking deal? As we're as already in the bathroom. Problem that we're just not solving—that's an easily solvable problem. It, it's not not criminalizing drugs and just offering people uh, help and, and housing. You think it's radical what I have to say about bathrooms? Where do you hear my take on drug the drug laws? 
Where's where's Zach? Where's Zach at? Is he asleep? What time is it in Australia right now? <laughs> That's uh Vika brings up another good thing is that like there's barely any public trash cans around Philadelphia. Like like you think that like in like such a populated place you should put like easily accessible trash. Dude, you have places in like next to CVS where they put like like locks and cinder blocks on their dumpsters because they're like no one's allowed to to put the trash in my private trash can. Meanwhile, there's like vacant lots that that, that are like filled with garbage and it's like well, in the neoliberal hellscape, you know, you got to pay. Everything's got to be privatized. and Everything's you know, a commodity. Yeah. Be, yeah, everything's a commodity. Trash can't just be a public trash disposal. Can't just be a public enterprise that is taken care of by the state. It's got to be a bunch of uh, private, private, yeah, firm, yeah. private uh, companies. And then when I was in Guatemala, when I was in Guatemala, there was people that I met in Guatemala City that said that they had to use private trash services that they had to pay to take their trash. And there's tons of places around Guatemala City where people are just burning trash. Like, like, See, like do, do you want to know who came up with the idea of like, you know, uh, uh, municipal subsidized trash disposal? The Soviet Union. No. Guess again. China. Guess again. Cuba. Guess again. The DPRK. Guess again. Well, I'm going way too late. I know they had that by the 1950s, so I don't know what I'm even talking about. Um, I'm going to go way other side. I'm going to go United States did it, and then we stopped doing it. You are correct. Shit. It was actually people that were are literally referred to, and you can Google this, sewer socialists out of i'm not kidding I you at all hear the like the, the the red scare shit when that was starting like you know like the way that like people talk about minimum like conservatives talk about like minimum wage and like health care back then when they were talking about trash distribution they were like no, yeah. no 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 you can't this is socialism these sewer socialists will never nationalize the waste distribution there was did you did you ever hear about did you ever hear about the uh like the the initial like private firefighters i know that that's a big one like new york city oh my god i've never yeah. heard of this yeah the real thing this is incredible hold on go back up i want let me read the first part all right, all right, all right. sorry 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 you go. super socialism was originally a pejorative term for the american social movement socialist movement that entered in milwaukee wisconsin from 92 to 1960 it was a term coined by morris hillquit at the 1932 milwaukee convention of the socialist party of america okay so as a commentary on the milwaukee socialists and their perpetual boasting about the excellent public sewer system in the city okay yes. so these are sewers is this also have to do with trash pickup yes yes okay. they they the factories new sanitation systems city-owned water and power systems improved education it's sometimes called constructive socialism Blah 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 blah. Non non constructive socialism. Is yeah. this kind of like the is this kind of like the um free lunch program of trash pickup where like some socialists got together and started doing it and essentially forced like the capitalist system to be like, fuck, we have to concede this or else we're done. Oh, I mean like that's the thing with like it's, it's it's like the same thing as like the the free breakfast programs that were started by the uh Black Panther Party. I just said that, yeah yeah it, it, it's adopted and then you know uh forgotten about it, it's underfunded and it's like oh it doesn't work and then and then we take it for granted decades later right yes but uh and now it's just a standard like it's not even um yeah it's not even like questioned um as like um you know is this socialistic does this need to be privatized it's like no obviously not or then we pre or then it just gets privatized because someone's like hey, i can make a couple extra bucks off of this Yes. Yeah. Yes. Or even worse, you know, your union is uh, bought and sold to the highest bidder 
and then like, you know, you get into a whole other, uh, you know, history of, uh, you know, organized labor in the U S that, uh, is fraught with, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Corruption. There it is. That word. The mafia. R- racketeering, right? Yeah. <laughs> What's up, yeah, Ashton? Yeah, it's, it's a sad, sad fact about unions in the U.S. Like, I wish, wish it wasn't that way, but yeah, they're all rackets. Uh, yeah, I mean, for the most, for the most part. Look, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you as somebody that, like, you know, whose father, you know, uh, didn't get treated good in the end by the union, and as somebody who is a union worker, right? But it's like, it's not great. No, it's not the final solution, right, for, like, you know, the the ills of, of modern labor. But is it, like, better than no union at all? I'll tell you, my, my dad's been a union carpenter in Philadelphia since he was 18 years old. And he's actually living pretty good right now. Um, after right. He dedicated, he's living better than uh, my, my mother, who also – see, my mother also dedicated her life to a workforce her entire life. But it wasn't unionized. So she's having a more insecure retirement than my father, who right. – for all that you can criticize the union for my dad, who's going up to the age of 60, who, you know, pretty much sacrificed his body as a laborer for the city of Philadelphia is actually living pretty comfortably these days. So, um, Oh yeah, for, yeah, for sure. Like not, that's not to dismiss unions, uh, wholesale. They're definitely, of course, yeah. uh, uh, they're part of the movement, you know, they're, they're part, they have been since the first international MRA and yep. yeah, uh, they still gotta be criticized when necessary to your point. Hey, so uh, Rick's, uh, you know, thing is running a little late, but uh, no worries. No worries. I'm not worried. Are you worried, chat? I'm not panicking. <laughs> I wouldn't panic. <laughs> you guys want to get into a little? I mean, we can, like, I feel like Rick wouldn't mind if we got into a little, uh, you know, we could just talk a little bit about the, the reading here, the first 30, 30 pages, maybe. If, uh, I, I don't want to, I don't want to step on Rick's you side. I, I know Rick, he, he, you know, he loves us. He wouldn't. Uh, Okay. Well, I, I, I was we'll thinking you. we'll blame you if if anything goes wrong. Actually, yeah. I, I was thinking. No, 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 no. I I was thinking because uh, Pat was was talking about this earlier, and he he's always excited to hear about like the intersections of Marxism and indigenous theory. And uh, you know, I was just wondering if you had anything that you would like to comment on that, because we I bring it up personally on stream a lot, and I was just wondering like if there's anything that you would like to kind of add to that. Yeah, sure. Um, there's there's uh, there's even this book, Mark Marks uh, in the Margin. Um, it's it's on the origins. It's where it's about where Marx himself adopted the uh, ideology of collectivism, uh, you know, and the approach of collectivism. And you know, it's a he got his specific um, uh, inspirations from non-European specifically on this continent uh, mo- uh, societies here who are collectivist um, and it's yeah yeah marks the margins there um, so you've, and, and, uh, sorry go ahead oh no I'm sorry I didn't mean to cut you off I was just gonna ask so you've kind of heard this kind of like I think there's like a like some non-marxists that will tend to employ this criticism of marxism that it's like this ideology like it's a european ideology it's an enlightenment ideology made by european white men um and i agree with that because it's obviously it's on at face value it's true but you know kind of what you're saying now is that what's being um, posited by this book is that Marx wasn't simply being like, I invented collectivism and I invented this theory of socialism that he was actually inspired by 
uh, non-Western cultures and their collective values as an inspiration for moving forward. Exactly. Yeah. And wh where I think Marxist, because I consider myself a Marxist, um, I, I where, where I see Marx being novel and his contribution, I think he is a very important figure. And, and he, I, I consider his work, especially uh, Das Kapital, you know, his other works are very important. Um, but, but especially Das Kapital, what it is, it's, it's, it's the application of collectivist organi organizing of society to industrial society. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like before that, there's pre-industrial society, you know, and, you know, in, in the reading we're going to do, we're going to we're going to read about the the um, we're, we're going to talk about the period right before the Industrial Revolution. Right. You know, mm -hmm. uh, right. which happened right. in 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 Britain and in the uh, east, uh, the, the early uh, uh, the, the early United States. Mm -hmm. um, I'm actually not too far from the, one of the first industrial towns here uh, in Massachusetts, Lowell, Massachusetts, one of the first industrial first oh, wow. towns to have industry, um, as, as we know it in terms of manufacturing textiles. Yeah. And, wow. um, so, yeah, it's, uh, you know, that's where, um, you know, I, I make this point on Rick's podcast in, in, in our recent, uh, in our most recent episode that we did with the panel uh talking about it, it, we really get into this a bit um it, it's more broad but i i think there's a, missing especially in the western left the uh history and historiography that goes into historical materialism which as marxists you know we are fundamentally dialectical material historical like analyzers we analyze history based on the material realities and the of any particular area and period of history and the, uh, it's it's important to understand I, I i feel like a lot of times things get oversimplified people call everything capitalism but it's it's right. very important to understand the particularities of history um uh the the particularities of how things evolved capitalism you know, you could call the the transitionary period from European feudalism to capitalism, I think its own period. I think people too often call that capitalism. You know, what happened here in the early, the, the beginning stages of the United States. And then, you know, likewise in what was happening in Europe, in, in Western Europe, in terms of the mercantile economies, yeah, uh, yeah. They, they're very specific economies, you know, they, they're very they weren't industrial at the beginning. Uh, you know, this is before textile manufacturing and everything that we know to be industrial. Uh, it's why we have this specific term called mercantilism, because it, it had a very specific character to it. That was it. That's that's. You know, capitalism as we know it today is very extractive to, to, to you could say, the same degree. But, but before that, it was extractive in a way that was different. Um, you know, we had certain kinds of economies. We had the fur trade. We get, you know, it's even mentioned in this reading that, yes. that we'll get to today, uh, the fur trade and how, how large a part of the uh, Western economy that was um, also slavery, something that Gerald Horn notes in his work. Um, that 
had an, had an incredibly uh, ridiculous margin of profit, something that, like he notes, Gerald Horn notes, uh, people would sell their child today for for a business that got a thousand percent profit rate, uh, prop, uh, margin of profit. That that slavery was at, estimated to be about over a thousand percent rate of profit. So that's like that that's something you couldn't dream about today. You know, today you, you think about how firms work. You know, you invest. You know, even with the extractive, like the 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 exploitation of labor that that's um that that's insane these days even then you know you're looking at n- not those rates of profit at, right. at best and, and you know that's like maybe like a tech firm you know could get those kinds of profit rates uh you have very specific oh, we got uh, get that. we um, got we got a visitor in in uh in audio uh, we, got a, <laughs> we got a visitor here is is uh mr rick here yeah rick just got so. here excellent good uh, job there, man. you really you really helped us keep the ball keep the ball afloat there we were <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much um derek yeah, yeah didn't want the um okay yeah he's here he sent the message okay i think derek just muted himself i'm not sure oh yeah yeah sorry but yeah uh, i guess okay. i'll just wrap up and say that yeah like uh in terms of the historical progression of of economies, I, I think we need to. I, I think a big deficit in terms of how we uh, analyze and how, how we're all theorizing and understanding things is we we can go beyond the the core theoretical works that are important, the Marx, the Lenin, uh, and and we need to learn about the history and uh, like this book that we're about to go over. Well, hey. Just goes a, over a lot of the history. Shameless plug. This is Subversive History, a multimedia community project that does aim to bring light to those specific historical topics that our friend Derek is uh, bringing up now. So if you're interested in that kind of content and you agree with Derek's assessment of uh, historical materialism, please tune in. And also check out their podcast. <laughs> also check out their podcast rick uh do you want me to unmute you or there i'm you good go. i'm just waiting for you guys to uh you know start it or whatever oh we we've been started i we, know uh, <laughs> no you're good you're good don't worry about it things happen completely out of our control all the fucking time and i can't tell and you we how, got many time. times, <laughs> how many times that happens <laughs> like when it's just me and pat all right. Hey, uh, thanks, Rick. Appreciate you coming on to uh, discuss this book with us. That um, you know, what for one, we're grateful that you uh, recommended the book to us so that we can, um, uh, shall I say, educate our Anglo brains about the indigenous struggles of North America. Um, and also, I'm incredibly grateful that you're willing to come on here and actually discuss the specific chapters of the yeah. book with us. Yeah, let's do it. So uh, just to get this rolling, uh, you know, chat and audience that may be listening to this in the future, think of this less of as a uh, subversive history stream and more of a live recording of a decolonized Buffalo podcast episode. And uh, we hope that you enjoy and we're going to default to uh, Rick and his discretion. Oh, no. I mean, you guys, uh, I mean, you guys read the chapter. The chapter yes. was... Um, chapter the prologue and the sure. first chapter for the great father by francis paul percha so yes. i think you 
questions about it. I mean, anybody that's reading, I always talk about, you know, having, having to read, you know, know history. And, you know, we talked about on your podcast that, you know, uh, especially Marxists like to, they know everything abroad, but they don't know their own history, right? Yep. And <laughs> I just recommended, you know, I, I mean, I found this book um, on digital version. I think it was the, uh, on digitally was the uh, unabridged version. So it's yes. longer. And yes. <laughs> I have the abridged version, which is shorter. But during law school, we had to read the abridged version. I mean, the whole fucking thing for one class, you know? So um, I thought it was a decent uh, coverage of Native history. But Native history, I think we cover real Native history. I, I mean, we would have an encyclopedia of, yeah. of books. But this is just like a short version, really quick, uh, you know. Um, but do you guys want to go into the prologue, your sure. thoughts on it, and then and then the chapter, your thoughts on it, and then we can go from then. Well, I have some notes here that I kind of took as I was reading um, because I read it once back when we first consulted you about some of the um, some of the questions we had about it. And then I read it again prior to us having this uh, conversation. And when I went through the reading again, I just kind of took some specific notes. So for everyone listening, um, the first thing that we did read is the prologue which is um, titled The Colonial Experience, I believe. Yes, The Colonial Experience. And the first chap, the first paragraph of it um, refers to like the colonial precedent that was set for the, you know, um, the just born United States that was left by the English um, so that, you know, the, the, the settlers kind of had this preconceived notion of, um, who the natives were. So I just kind of wanted to bring that up first was that like precedent that was like, and also I kind of wanted to ask you if um, the kind of the vibe that I was getting is that there may have been this sort of native orientalism that existed in the mind of the yeah. settlers as they were coming. Would you agree with that assessment? I think so. I mean, they're obviously a bias. These are, these are civilization that um, was, has never been encountered before, you know, so when they came here, they had to make do to how to deal with natives. I mean, we—I mean, obviously, we have a very different culture than the rest of the world. So I mm -hmm. think um, there was—I mean, the chapter talks about the, the images of, of the Indians on that. And the, after this, the first chapter, you know, and it talks about the noble savage, the, the ig ignoble savage, you know, right. savagisms, and you know, and younger brethren. You know, and all that stuff. So I, you know, they, it's, it's, I mean, this stuff still happens now. I mean, when you go to like, uh, you see the new agey stuff, you know, like at uh, Coachella, whatever, people with headdresses and they think, you know, I don't know, I don't know how people think of, they imagine, you know, a native person being able to, you know, just, they have this weird image of native people. So I, I don't know if it, it came with colonial times. I think it did maybe. <laughs> so, but I think, um, yeah. But just kind of like, this is kind of what I was referring to here. 
Um, the accumulated images of Indians, however, were not free of preconceptions. The Europeans had already established patterns under which to cast inhabitants of the new world since they lived in or close to the state of nature were commonly called savages. And like it said, it says, uh, I missed this part. The Portuguese, French, English, and Dutch followed the Spanish to America. They created their own reservoir of facts, surmises, and fanciful tales about the Indians. So this is kind of like, you know, where does this exist outside of like the reality? Like, you know what I mean? Like the European conceptualization, even maybe for those that aren't even on the, um, like the colonies yet, like the way that it's, that it's looked at back in Europe. And then obviously more and more settlers are coming and they're, they're arriving with preconceived notions of what the natives are like and how they need to be treated and so on. Yeah. I, I just think, you know, um, how do I say this? It's, I mean, you know, I think the Europeans always has always always have had a a, a sort of bias to civilizations they encountered, civilizations right. during their their uh, you know adventure, whatever the fuck they want to call it, to <laughs> colonizing the world. They, they they see Asian people a certain way, you know. That's why they saw they they had the nickname for the Chinese was really racist. Uh, and it's in a Bruce Lee movie. They call them, the, you know, the sick men of Asia. You know, right, and, right. And uh, that, you know, different perspectives. For people in India, you know, or Southeast Asia, or in the Philippines. So I think, you know, the native people here got, you know, obviously got uh, a certain imagery in their head. And I, I mean, it's weird because you, I mean, obviously they're having relationships with these people. But I think if you read uh, Joan Horn's book. The sort of conversation is like pushing native people away. Yeah, you, you had like trade relations and all that stuff, but it wasn't like in good faith. Right? Okay. All right. Um, you said that book was called "The Sword of Civilization." No, with me. Yeah, I thought you named it. The Gerald Horn book. Is there a specific Gerald Horn book that you were referencing there? That, oh, that I think it's uh, Dawning of the Apocalypse. Dawning okay. of the Apocalypse. Yeah, oh, we've been. Interesting that you say that. Hang on one second. So, um, Rick, you kind of already referred to the noble slash ignoble savages. I thought that was a pretty relevant point of this first uh, prologue here. And obviously, we've read through the book and we've provided the PDF to our audience so that they can also read the book if they so choose. But do you think you can kind of just um, elaborate on that dynamic a little bit, like the noble slash ignoble savage? Or do you think, would you want me to pull the quotes up from the book? Or what do you think the best way to, to handle yeah, I'll that? Put is? the quotes up. Cool. Yeah, I think the quotes are actually pretty good in terms of like how they break that down. Um, so here we have, give me one moment, I'll find it up. So it says here that there's the um, two basic images that developed and they were contradictory in content. The first was that of the noble savage, that it was natural man living without technology and elaborate social structures, naked without shame, unconcerned about private ownership and the accumulation of material wealth, but sharing all things unselfishly. And free from the problems of government, the Indian represented an idyllic state from which the European had strayed or fallen. Dwelling in an earthly paradise, the Indians were a living example of a golden age, long past in European history, but now suddenly thrust again upon the world's consciousness. The good Indian welcomed the European invaders and treated them courteously and generously. He was handsome in appearance, dignified in manner, and brave in combat. And in all, he exhibited primitivism that had great appeal to many Europeans. So before we get to the ignoble portion of this, what do you, because I think this noble savage, this is actually something that like a, um, a misnomer that exists to this day or like a misconception that exists to this day, correct? 
Yeah, I think it's kind of, I mean, obviously this is a racist trope, you know, like that we have no technology. We obviously had science back in the day. I mean, even like, say, I don't want to like fetishize the civilization, but the Aztecs obviously had a a lot of math. You know, we don't really know to what extent, because, you know, a lot of our knowledge um, was deleted. But, you know, I think um, that, I think that, you know, that, that, that trope is that, the Europeans are more civilized, they're more mm-hmm. advanced. It's just like really a racist trope. So I think, you know, but this is this is the, the the entitlement they had going around the world that they were more, they were better, you know, even though other civilizations had more advanced science, you know, and, you know, they were, you know, it just, it wasn't just because it wasn't their science. It wasn't, yes. you know, so I think right. they, they had to go to a noble savage so you know that's the, that's the quote-unquote noble noble savage but i think on the other side when we get to the ignoble savage it's like they had to create another trope to <laughs> to demonize the natives right right it's, it's like two sides cones of the coin like oh we can study these people because they're like they're, they're primitive quote-unquote but at the same time like when it whenever we um act up whatever or, or you know rebel they're like you know these ignoble savages and they're just too hostile and this plays mm-hmm. out now i think i mean like it's the same thing when you know when i meet people when i went to university um and it was like oh you're native blah 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 cool do you know about you know like what's that um you know cleaning you know, clean cleaning your space you know with with sage or whatever oh, or okay. do you know like ceremony and powwow and dances but the moment you start talking about decolonization you become this hostile native right, right. like oh he's right. too hostile natives right. are hot-blooded and all that shit. oh he's comanche he's too hot-blooded yeah. and it's just like what the fuck does that mean you know so i mean it still it still exists so you're you're almost saying that even like this isn't even just like a predetermined uh like I the conceptualization that exists in different individuals, but that in an in, in individual themselves can wane between these two depending on circumstances. Like like a person doesn't just believe one or the other. Like a person can have this like idyllic view of like, wow, I love your culture. It's so cool how you guys dance around. And then the moment that you flip the script and start, you know getting talking about decolonization then they they oscillate into this other this other frame of thinking this ignoble savage way of expression that's like wow how could you be so hostile you know you know you how how can you appune me or my ancestors or something like that yeah it's like for another example i was at coachella again like uh there's a a, a, you know a a white person wearing a, a plains native headdress and you know they're like, oh, native this, native that. But the moment a native person snatches it from their head, oh, he's too aggressive. That person's too aggressive, and it's just like, don't, don't fuck with my shit. <laughs> you know? So you know, it's one of those things that, like I said, I, I've dealt with it too before, and I think that, um, you know, it, that, that that trope has not died away. Yeah, um, uh, Derek actually wants to comment on this as well, but I think he's having a little bit of um, uh, a technical issue. So I definitely want to make sure that he has his space and we're not going to talk past him. Yeah, um, right. Hopefully he reconnects. So let's let's make sure that we put a pin in that so that he can um, offer up his... Um, man, it's kind of weird. Have you seen it? It says device is not connected. Yeah, no, I have not seen it do this. They will need to connect their mic uh, before you can add them to the stream. 
um i guess like you know uh in the meantime uh you know if you yeah. want to walk him through that Pat, he said go um, ahead so he can if he, i'm sure when he comes back on we'll definitely entertain whatever he has to say um, right i just wanted to say one quick thing in terms of like you know this I idea of like civilization i think that like it's often forgotten that like you know these are people that had like you know been on this continent for like you know what appears to be over you know the time that is uh often like given to us by archaeologists or whatever and that it's like over a hundred thousand years right these are people that have like you know um best understood the land more than like you know these people that like you know are just getting here you know what i mean uh and also in terms of like you know archaeological finds we find these uh massive burial sites especially in like the southeast we find like you know these massive uh pieces of of you know uh technological construction and I, I think that oftentimes it's uh, what, because it's not, you know, Gobekli Tepe, because it's not Stonehenge or like the, the fucking pyramids, like, you know, throughout, like, I guess what would be considered today the U.S. and not just, you know, um, like the Olmec or the Aztec or like, you know, the, the, the Maya. I understand that like they have a lot of like um, megalithic structures or whatever you would want to call them or refer to them as. Right. But I think that like there are just as many structures you know, along with like the, the Plains Indians and even the tribes, there are nations that existed within like, you know, the Northeast that like understood this land and had technological advancements that we are trying to rediscover today in order to sustainably uh, use this land, right, uh, in, in a way that like doesn't uh, completely drain it of like, you know, uh, the, 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 the minerals and, and like, you know, uh, compounds that like it needs to be able to continue to, to grow life and have life. Yeah. I also thought it was kind of interesting. Maybe it, does it say in the extended version or the, the full like two volume version, does it go into more about like who was kind of like, I guess like the emissary of English colonialism, because it touches on Christopher Columbus and then it pretty much it it uh, it says that there's like two centuries of like English colonialism or English uh, interaction with uh, these First Nations, and then like you know we just kind of skip straight ahead to like you know um, the 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 1600s. When did the British come in? The six uh, 1400s? Oh, I know no, that well, was here early. 1492 was obviously Columbus and, you know, that was like an Italian as like an emissary of Spain. I don't, right. would it be the pilgrims at Plymouth Rock would be the, was that, that was that the first English envoy to land here, I guess they would say? I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> uh, I believe that would be if, if if my elementary school teaching has taught me anything, I believe that uh, the Mayflower was the beginning of uh, the English coming here. You, are you it's, pulling up? Uh, yeah, it's a uh, Jamestown, Jamestown, Virginia. Yeah, yeah. We re that's where Bacon's Rebellion was. It was the first colony. Sixteen twenty-two. I see. Uh, Sixteen oh seven. One hundred and four English men and boys arrived in North America to start a settlement. On May thirteenth, they picked Jamestown, Virginia, for their settlement, which was named after their king, James the First. The settlement became the first permanent English settlement in North America. So I yeah. guess. So yeah. I think. I'm used to like the whole Columbus things and they yeah. were in the Caribbean for a while. And then they were in Mexico, like at 15, 19 ish. Yeah. So I, I know yeah. the whole, yeah, the whole Mayflower and the, and the, and the, you know, to me, they, 
came later. So, but I mean, there's a difference between, I mean, obviously there's a difference between Spanish colonization and British colonization. Um, Like the British, the British brought their families with them with the Spanish, not so much. Right. Right. This opens up a a good point of conversation here that I was curious about from reading this book. And I want to know if this is, so you know how recently, and I know you discussed this directly on your podcast with Gerald Horn, that there's some um, detractors of Gerald Horn's writings that accuse him of British apologia. Now, just putting that to the side, Mm -hmm. being as this book kind of follows a similar trend, do you notice any, um, not, not accusing that of him of him whatsoever. I believe fully that he defended himself perfectly from that. If you're interested in hearing him defend himself from those kind of ludicrous attacks, check his podcast uh, with Rick on the Colonized Buffalo. But in this book specifically, like I know that they were, do you, I know that you said that English had their way of colonizing and then there was Spain's version of colonizing. And in this book, right in the beginning, he makes a pretty clear um, dichotomy between Spain and England. And he pretty much puts Spain down as an extremely violent with forced labor and eradication. And he does paint the English as like a, you know, somewhat more benevolent colonizing force, especially at least when compared with Spain. Um, would you agree with the author on that? Or do you think that he's being uh, pulling punches for the British? Um, I, I mean, I think they were both pretty brutal, but I think the Spanish came in pretty hot. We have to <laughs> understand that um, uh, the, the Spanish came when the Spanish sailed. So when the Spanish came to the Americas was 1492, right? Yeah. And they, um, they just came. They just got done with their with their uh, inquisition against the the Moors, with the Arabs. Mm-hmm right Mm -hmm. for 800 years right so they were fighting against the arabs and the moors for 800 years and the north africans so they they were finishing that and then they came into the americas i mean they they came in hot like they were like slaughtering people they were just like i mean you can read about it i mean like uh mexicans talk about all the time chicano Mm -hmm. too like they were cutting babies out of stomachs and feeding people to dogs and you know and they, they didn't do treaties they said hey this is this is like this is our newfound conquer land, and they they did it via religion, right? And right. they assimilate. They try to assimilate everybody, and yeah. So I think, um, I mean, they were a vital part of the slave trade too. It wasn't just the British; it was also the Spanish. They brought a lot of African people for slavery into the Americas, um, and like I said, it very it's very like. A, diversion is like assimilation i mean they, they also used like black people and you know and um and other other they, they moved native people around a lot so they moved native people from the philippines into mexico and from mexico into native people from mexico into the caribbean mm-hmm. right so they just switched stuff around so they wouldn't know their environment to enslave them for you know slave labor and you know but they they eventually uh, since they didn't bring families, a lot of the Spanish men married into some of these women, right? The, the colonized yeah. women, and it became, you know, they, they created a caste system. And, and we talked about this on the other episode, right? The caste system. Yep. So they had a caste system, and it was messy. And this is where Mestizaje came in. But right. the British came in, and the way they colonized was. Uh, through like legal means, 
Right. Right. It was like, well, we're going to do treaties with natives. We're not going to be like mm-hmm. the Spanish. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, but they were still pretty, like, I mean, they still killed women and children. I mean, right. like, it's, it's just like, come on. Right. But it, it, it's, but there was a point where the crown stepped in and they made the 1763 Royal Proclamation. It was like, you don't cross this line with the Appalachian Mountains because. You know, there's, there's, there's going to be some kind of host, hostilities if this continues. But the settlers, you know, it shows you that the dynamic of colonization, you know, like even though the crown tried to stop or slow it down, the settlers were like still encroaching on native lands. And it, you know, led to a rebellion, right? A lot of people yeah. say that, you know, this, that the American Revolution happened because of fucking taxes, representation. That sounds fucking dumb. Right. I mean, these people obviously wanted to keep encroaching on native land and the Marshall trilogy shows that. Right. right. So when, when people say, oh, you know, uh, Gerald Horn was, you know, oh. using the, the race card or he was, you know, revisionist, whatever. But, it, you know, the, the basic native law 101 history, the Marshall trilogy shows that these land speculators wanted native lands. Right. And they didn't like the, the uh, uh, royals uh, regulations on uh, native treaty making, which was only the crown could make treaties with the local native people, right? Right. The nation. nation. Um, just to kind of speak to that point that you're bringing up, because we we're definitely jumping ahead just a little bit here, which which is fine. But so when I wanted to talk about that, and, and this is a question I had for you also. So the dynamic that you're um, bringing up now is that so you have obviously the colonies on the eastern side of the United States, and you have their mother country, England. Then you have like the book refers to them as frontiersmen, and like there's the the settlers who like. Now, there might be some kind of like organizational capacity of like the colonies themselves or the mother country that understand that this is like a a very tense situation between the natives and the settlers and things could go left, things could get bloody, things could turn to all out war. So we need to implement some kind of like a federalized law or at least like a like a statewide law, the colony wide law that's going to like because um, because the, the ways in which that they're. In, in inciting these conflicts is by taking land, making treaties that aren't federally recognized, um, engaging in trade that isn't being like, you know, uh, federally or officially recognized that all these ways are, I guess, like co- coercive ways in which that the colonists and the frontiersmen are abusing, uh, let's say like the native populations. Um, now, do you believe that that's obfuscating the responsibility of the colonies or the or or England? And like they're kind of like, hey, we were trying our best to make this as uh, as all as cool and copacetic as possible, but these frontiersmen—they're just unruly. We can't control them. Or do you believe that that was a pretty accurate assessment of what was going on? Oh, you're muted, man. Sorry, sorry, my mic. No, you're yeah. good. <laughs> Look, I think yeah. So I, the, the colonies, each colony had their own way to make treaties, but it, it was real messy, just like you said, mm-hmm. right? Right. And then at 1755, that's when the crown said, "Hey, like any treaty is like royal matters, not colony anymore." Right? right, because people, regular people, were tr- trying to create treaties with natives, and they were trying to do some outrageous deals, like all oh, this crazy amount of land for whatever. So the other, you know, like it was, this guy real sloppy, and then, you know, um, 
the crown had to step in and be like, no, like, because obviously, if somebody goes out of control, they can create territory to undermine the crown. You know, the crown has to regulate. Uh, I mean, we still live under feudalism, so like early capitalism and feudalism. So it, you know, it's yeah. I mean, it was a mess. So, okay. uh, and I think uh, I think we have Derek back in, and he said that he has uh, something to comment on this as well. So, Derek, it looks like you're hooked up, right? Um, are you able to to let's see? The, the mic is working. We're not hearing anything just yet. So you know, I, oh, I do want to. There say, we go. There. Okay. You got to add him because they because okay. they're guests. They can't add themselves. Oh, so. oh all right, all right. I see. Yeah. Good. All right. Good. Yeah, yeah. I, f I feel like I was trying to get like a um, in preparation for this. I was and doing the reading. I was trying to get a uh, you know a good uh, um, a, a simple way to explain this to people. You know, because there's so many like you know you get I, I have extensive notes on this uh on this just this 30 pages that we did we love um, that um but but i feel like to give a, a broad overview is like there, there are multiple interests at play right multiple mm -hmm. interest groups you have the colonists who have their own interests you have britain who has their own interests and then you have the various groups of native uh you know you you, you could say <laughs> you know all of the, the groups of natives had their interests against both of them, uh, both the colonists and the Brit, uh, the British. And other natives but, at times, correct? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 other this all, like, and this is kind of like with Gerald Horn's book, right? Like we're like, this is the similar thing with the counter-revolution of 1776, where it's like England might have been like, hey, you know, maybe we should stop bringing slaves over here. Things are getting really out of control over there. And then you have the private slave traders and the colonists that are like, no way. I don't, you know, we're not looking at the bigger picture. We just want to, you know, run this to the ground. And yeah, they're, they're looking at, hand. yeah, they're looking just right in front of their nose in terms of like what land they can grab their land speculators. It's even mm -hmm. pointed out in this reading. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, to Rick's point, uh, anyone who has critiques of Gerald Horn, that you know, the critiques that we've seen are pretty much dismissed with this just first reading that we're doing yes. here with this book. Um, uh, yeah. And and uh, yeah, to uh, to to note on the uh, on the different groups and their interests, like we have the indigenous peoples playing basically whichever hand they have that's best. You know, like you know, they're playing their good hand. That you know, they have. Uh, they have the British who are just offering them a better deal, really, at, at, right. at, like through this whole period of the later 1700s. Um, they're giving them more supplies. They're, the British have more of an interest in, in being careful with the right. whole colonial situation in terms of like not trying to stoke, uh, um, stoke resistance from from the indigenous because they're they're fighting on multiple fronts you yeah. know eventually they they've come to be fighting the colonists themselves their own colonies but they're also fighting the french they're mm -hmm. fighting as we as rick was just uh elaborating on the spanish mm -hmm. uh the, the spanish territorial claims on the continent uh you so you have all of these different interest groups and from you know for, from my perspective is you know as an as someone who's uh ancestral lands are occupied by colonizers is like, you know, like they're who I sympathize with in this situation. And, you know, like I understand that they're playing 
they're they're playing the interest as as it, it comes to them. They they right. and, and they're also like they're choosing their battles. They're picking their battles. They they're choosing who uh, who to ally with and when, uh, which in through the whole uh, revolutionary period, you know, of the of the American counter revolution, as as uh, Gerald Horn, as Gerald Horn puts, um, they're siding with the British because they're offered a better better deal. It's the colonists who are pushing the boundaries, who are, who are looking to acquire new territories, which are the the indigenous territories. So yeah, I feel like that's a good like summation. Um, cool. in terms of like the different interests at play and what mm-hmm. and how it all played out i just wanted to add one thing because it's interesting that you bring up uh gerald horn and specifically the counter-revolution of 1776 because in that book he has a scathing critique of uh the the english uh conception of race right and he like you know um contrasts it with like the spanish conception of race for their their different colonies and the way that these things are structured and the english had this conception of of race that like you know whether you are welsh scott or irish you know um as long as you're not catholic i guess um if you come to the u.s right you are you are white right and then while i'm reading this um in this book that uh the concept of savagism and inferiority did not imply racism. That is a belief that the Indian was an inherently different kind of being incapable of rising out of an inferior condition. That was little question in the minds of the Englishmen that the Indians were human beings like themselves, a belief firmly planted in the scriptural account of Adam as the single progenitor of all men, nor was color an obstacle for the brownness or tawny complexion of the Indians was considered to be the result of conditioning by the elements or by the use of cosmetics on persons born basically white. Not until the very end of the 17th century was there any reference to Indians as red, and then the term may have been symbolic meaning or arisen from the use of war paint, which, you know, all of this, I I would say, is just... um, seems like very like you're you're stretching it this paragraph you're stretching it so fucking hard like the english yeah the whole reason that we're all together right now on this stream talking is almost directly because of this paragraph because um we started reading this book and we were just going to cover this how we traditionally cover a book and um you know when i read this i was like i messaged johnny and i was like hey so he says that savages and inferiority did not imply racism i'm having a hard time wrapping my head around how that's possible and then also we just then we kind of came to the realization we're two white guys that are standing in front of an audience and we're going to read this book and be yeah like, hey, so uh guys guess what this uh, i guess this wasn't racist and then we're, <laughs> we need to be real careful about how we do this so we consulted brick and that's where this whole thing came came to being so could you guys touch on this paragraph a little bit just so that um you know we're not putting forth any kind of like problematic uh viewpoints of this i think that paragraph's garbage <laughs> I mean, like, oh, fuck. I mean, they were they were like capturing Africans and you know and doing slave trade exactly uh, like yeah. way before the, the British came to to you know the Americas. So there, there was obviously a view on racism, right? Right. I mean, even amongst like as you were saying earlier, like uh, there were you know um, amongst Irish and Scottish, you know, in the Europeans, Italians, you know. Even well, the Spanish, I mean, the know? Italians were not white yet, and like yeah. I think that even the argument to be made of like you know uh, the English 
uh, acknowledging the humanity of black people or Africans was literally done out of desperation because like they did not have any domestic other white people that they feel that they would trust their lives in because like their military uh, you know, couldn't rely on Scots or Irish or Welsh because they wanted it out from underneath the crown. So, like, you know, this this whole part is it's fucking weird, man. And uh, you know, I think if, if people want to know again, just you know, not, not to keep referring to this book, but I think this, the book does cover it, is uh, the Dawning of the Apocalypse by Horn, and it talks about the creation of the white race. Right or like pan Europeanism, how it was shattered at first, but then it got bigger and bigger, adding more and more people. So I think, yeah, I mean, there's also this book if you want chat. The invention of race uh, in the European Middle Ages. Great, great reference there. Great, uh, great, great book recommendation there. I appreciate that. I have great people recommending me books. So yeah, so I'm so happy that we could have this discussion with you and understand what part of what parts of this book are just like, you know, good historical reference points so that we understand the history. And then also maybe like some of the antiquated commentary or the antiquated perspective from the author who, you know, is a white guy in the eighties and maybe he didn't have enough nuance to like, yeah, you know, for me personally, just someone sitting here in 2023, the concept of someone being an inferior savage, but that's not racist. It's just, you know, um, uh, a very contradictory s- sentence. I, I'm not quite sure how you could put those words I'd, on paper. I'd actually, sorry, that was like when my uh, w- when when we first got on this, the, the beginning of the, this reading. Uh, that's that's when my <laughs> my technical issues started. Uh, if I could comment on that real quick, yes, um, please, please do. Uh, so, like me being a like you know, I'm a cannabis cultivator, but that falls under the category of agriculture. So that's a lot of what I study is agriculture. Yeah, um, and and especially as a breeder. Um, a lot of you know what I do is understanding how to do so. Sele- another word for breeding is selecting. I don't know if you guys know much about how uh, modern crop varieties, you know, like what we grow for crops and food, like, like phenotypes from. and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly, phenotypes. Um, oh God! So I think and, I know where we're going. Oh God! Well, well, we could get into like the the origins of of eugenics, which would be uh, you know if people want to look up just like even quick wiki searches of Franz Gall and Francis right. Galton. Uh, um, I'm pretty sure it's Galton who is a cousin of Darwin um, and took his ideas and right. you know, if I, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, it, uh, and and you know applied it to the human, you know human humans and and you know like it genetically there's no basis for race that's like you know this is like there's so many readings to to recommend on that um absolutely but but like i I was was. just uh i was i was just going to comment on just crop production in general and like you know the idea of like the indigenous of this continent being uh being technologically uh undeveloped you know, right. we had we had a lot of technology developed uh, primarily on the Silk Road, um, which is where Europe got its. Uh, you know, Europe really. You know, the the only reason Europeans had math was because of Asians and North Africans. Like the only reason they had uh, the ability to navigate and lit the the whole 
uh, latin sales and just like the ability to honestly do just about anything even the things that they call the the plants that they cultivated to eat and and to have an agrarian agricultural society came from asia and africa yep um, right but this continent was extremely highly advanced in terms of its uh the, the indigenous people of this continent were perhaps the most advanced on earth mm. uh, in terms of crop production. Like not only did they do what, you know, permaculture is this term that was coined by a white oh. guy in, the, in, the set, in like the seventies or whatever. And like, yeah. you know, that's just like, he's just like coined a term that was just really appropriating the ideas that indigenous people here had for thousands of years in yeah. terms of like, in terms of land management and being able to live off the land in a way that's and land stewardship is yeah. is is uh, essentially what the the technological the, this this continent was extremely technologic the people of this continent were extremely technologically advanced right. um, when i they, was they, they they bred so many crops into production all of the, the you know tomatoes potatoes corn um, squash, uh, like, you know, the list goes on. They, they, they selectively bred so many cultivars into, into existence. It's, it's really like, it's, it's, uh, unparalleled by anywhere else in the world. And the European settlers literally would not have survived were, right. were it not for these crop, like they, so many, you know, you can go back and look at the failed colonial experiments at first the 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 for the first europeans that arrived here just didn't know how to feed themselves and they just died like it's, right. it's and, uh the, um, the first couple jamestowns to this yeah. day so we that, keep trying to eat corn whole yeah. well that reminds me to <laughs> yeah. a personal anecdote and then also something from the book um so in um uh, when I visited Guatemala and I visited uh, the ruins of Tecpan, uh, my guide, you know, is the one who told me about the three sisters, which I'm sure you're familiar with. With somebody that studies agriculture, I believe it was like the way that these three crops of corn, um, potatoes, and um, maybe what was the third? I, I'm sorry, I don't remember, but it's. Beans. Uh, beans that's what it was and the way that these like um the growing methods complemented one another and uh things like that and then also i learned when i visited tikal which is some ruins in guatemala that uh they said that people uh, i guess that they would be the mayans uh invented stucco like the concept that we have of stucco was created like they were showing me the ruins and said that they had used what would be considered stucco um centuries before that it was like officially developed in a european sense but um, that what you brought up, plants, um, made me think of something. So the book references something called the Massacre of 1622, which did happen in Jamestown. And um, this actually was really interesting that this is actually like this specific like massacre that, that happened in 1622 uh, was actually like, I guess, like in some way, like tangentially related to the story that would become Pocahontas. And um, when this rift occurred between the natives and the English settlers of Jamestown when the, 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 when the natives decided to stop having a conciliatory relationship with the, the settlers, they went through a period called the starving period where like 80% of the colony died because, um, the, the natives were no longer trading with them or providing them with like agricultural advice. And like the, almost the entirety of the, the colony just withered away from incompetence. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's there's so many examples of the 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 a bunch of the original colonies just completely failing, and you know, and the next boat that shows up shows up to a ghost town of dead settlers. Ah, Roanoke, <laughs> Roanoke, the 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 conspiracy theory, you know, uh, of of all time. The colonists, the first group of whom originally arrived on May 1367, have never planned to grow all of their own food. Their plans <laughs> depended on trade with the local, um, I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing this right, Powhatan, uh, to supply them with food between the arrivals of periodic supplies from England. Lack of access to water and severe drought crippled the agriculture. Um, on June 7th, the survivors boarded ships. Yeah, it just, uh, they, Is like, they had about a cannibalism up there. <laughs> Oh, yeah. There's scientific evidence that the settlers of Jamestown had turned to cannibalism during the starving time. Jesus Christ. You literally are living in like a fucking Garden of Eden and you got to <laughs> eat your like what? Well, and also it's it's ironic that like cannibalism is something that's frequently to this day attributed to native cultures. But um, you have the settlers practicing it right here. Right. That makes sense, though. I mean, yeah. I think that's, that was the most realistic thing in that in that show, The Last of Us, where there was like the native couple chilling in a house, yeah. like, and then like there's like a town over, and people are eating themselves. And they're all white. Oh yeah, <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Like, they were just chilling. They were hunting. They had their little house together and everything. And then, like a couple miles down the river, there's just like absolute like chaos. My my favorite thing about that is when uh, the 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 woman goes, uh, "There are firefly people." Cause it's like there's already like mushroom people. It's like yeah, I guess like you know, are there mushroom people now? <laughs> I mean, firefly people now. <laughs> I think too, and you know, all the Aztecs—they had like floating gardens on lakes. You know, yeah. called ch chinapas or something like that. If you call it ch uh, chinapas, I think it's called chinapas. I mean, this is all over like Chicano, uh, their so, uh, capital city, you know, uh, I'm not going to try and pronounce it cause I'm going to fuck it up. Please help me out. Rick. The one that was like basically made on an artificial lake that they made. Yeah. I'm not going to pronounce know? it. I'm not, I'm not sure either. No. All right. <laughs> fuck. All right. All right. Fuck it then. Well, the techno Ticlon. Yeah. Yeah. That one. I'm pretty certain that's like what modern Marvel, like to this day, like at the time there was like no other society, you know, at that time that could produce something like that. Oh yeah. So, so many examples on this continent of just like untold, uh, technological advances uh like like what i was alluding to before uh terraforming uh it's the the, the um the term i was looking for uh terror like the indigenous people of these continents in this hemisphere uh right. they te they terraformed the entire continent they they built such an an incredibly rich level of topsoil uh and and rich. they what yeah they they were yeah this this was a rich continent of a very meticulously stewarded land that that was that was designed specifically to to uh, to sustainably care for provide for their societies uh, in ways that like you know unfortunately a lot of it was lost only so only so much of it has has been uh, so many uh, historical accounts have been able to um, uh, pay homage to. Sorry, so, I was. I, I just want to bring this up really quick and then I'll I'll shut up. Uh where the hell is it? I just want to share this window right here. Why can't I fucking find it? 
I'm sorry. There's this book called The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere by Paula F. Steves. Um, and uh, what the hell is it? It's pretty much about um, like the indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere is a reclaimed history of the deep past of indigenous people in North and South America during the Paleolithic. Uh, you know, this person mines evidence of archaeology sites and Paleolithic environments, landscapes and mammalian and human migration to make the case that people have been on the Western Hemisphere, not only just the prior to the to the Clovis sites, which is 10,200 years ago, but for more than 60,000 years and more likely more than 100,000 years. Uh, and this book documents a lot of the archaeological dig sites that like kind of get pushed under the rug because uh, that kind of breaks the brain of like, you know, what uh, what like, you know, uh, modern archaeology is saying. They can't have something that disagrees with like, you know, um, the the uh, agreed upon premise that like the Clovis people are the earliest people here. Right. And that's that um, because, you know, like a lot of um, different like, you know, First Nations, right. Like their their origin stories are like we have always been here. <clears throat> that is you did a really good job with that recommendation. Just saying Paulette Steves is uh, thank you. Pretty good. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Welcome. I'll post um, the link in right. the chat. So I guess I guess what would be appropriate now um, would be to like let's uh, we talked about the English a lot and a lot of those dynamics. I guess we can bring it up to the actual like kind of the inception of the United States of America. Um, now, when once all of these individual colonies kind of get brought under the umbrella of the United States, now there's some very specific treaties um, that are formed at this time, or like should I say like you know, um, declarations and they, they kind of like leave the natives out of it. So like, there's like the thing where they have to kind of scramble to like, cause it's like they're at first they're kind of treated like another nation, but then they understand that there's like some kind of an issue with that, that they have to change. And there's like a very clear demarcation of like, this is the United States. And then everything to the West of here is no longer everything West of here. And I guess North of Louisiana is that's con considered like native country. I think, yeah, so we have to go to uh, back a little bit. So the, the, the crown before the revolution created a tooth department. It was the southern and northern part of India to conduct Indian affairs, right? And uh, it, I think it was called Indian department. I think it's in this book, isn't it? Uh, it's somewhere in the chapter. And um, so, we talked about the Royal Proclamation of 1763 and how the settlers broke it. Um, it was, uh, I mean, back then, I'm not, I'm not advocating for police, police states, but back then there was no police. Right. right. So the settler uh, went and he murdered some community, a native community. What happened was the native people saying, hey, not your people, you know. Um, I'm sorry. Is, is the yeah, Rick, Rick, yeah, Rick, you're breaking up a little bit. I don't know if maybe you're yeah, so a bad reception. I mean, no. Can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah. So what happened was the lit person. Sorry. So the lit person will do the, uh, It's still breaking up a little bit, Rick. Um, God damn it. Uh, what about now? That sounds okay. better. Okay. So what happened was the lit person will go. The governor, whatever or person in charge. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> Shit! I'm sorry, Rick. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, uh, 
Yeah. Are you in a tunnel? <laughs> no. again. <laughs> you're in the you're in the middle of a desert, huh? Is it the yeah. <laughs> there's there's actually a dust here, so it's, it's literally a dust storm happening. So, um, yeah. Can you hear me now? A little bit. I can hear you like pretty good for like a couple words, and then it just uh, okay. And then it just so, kind of like you know cuts out. Okay, head my you. So I think it's worse now. Yeah, it looks oh, like it's worse. Let me log out. I'll come back in. Okay. 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 Uh, yeah. All right. Sorry, what are we going over now? Uh, I, I was trying. I was trying to figure out what he was trying to say. I think he said something well, about local so, governors. Right. So I, I kind of laid out like the, the there's the inception of like the 13 colonies into the United States, and then obviously this is pre Louisiana Purchase. Hey, Rick. Am I good now or not? I think you sound good. That sounds good. Okay. So when somebody got murdered. Uh, somebody from the local native community will go to a company and say one of your people killed our, our people. And then, you know, obviously the army had to force it, but like I said, the army is not a police, you know, like a district police force. So a lot of settlers killed a bunch of natives. So the British Crown would have to pay, would actually just end up paying the local community's money or whatever because they couldn't find. All the murders, there's so many murders right happening. In addition, right. that conversation didn't happen on the top level, it happened with the regular sellers too. Like they were promoting this shit, right? And well, to move forward, uh, that's why the Royal Proclamation line was created. There was a lot of like uh, fucked up shit going on, but you know, after the revolution happened, uh, the, the US mirrored. What the British had done with with Indian, Indian policy and created a, a you know um, uh, a, a you know a, um, sorry a department to deal with Native people um, and before the Constitution was um, Articles of Confederation right and Article Nine within the Articles and Confederation says the U.S. and Congress shall have the sole and exclusive right of power to regulating the trade and managing of all affairs with the Indians, not members of any Senate, uh, wait, not members of any Senate within its own limits would not be French or violated. So, you know, um, so they tried to create uh, uh, the same type of policy. So like the British style colonization continued under an American banner change. So, um, and then after, um, you know, obviously there were like native people that were like fighting during the revolution, fighting for the British, right? And people were fighting for the Americans. So when the American Revolution happened and the conflict ended, the Treaty of Paris ended the war for the British and the Americans. But the war was still going on between the Americans and the Native people. Right? It wasn't a new um, treaty for Islamics and a treaty for Gosh that ended uh, you know, the, the war between the Native people and the Americans. And the U.S. claimed, you know, it had conquered those Native and that land from Native people, and it's called the Northwest Ordinance. If you can Google 
1787 Northwest Ordinance, right? It shows you that the um, the, the chunk of land that you know it took from the Native people. I think it was like Michigan, some of Ohio, uh, you know, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Indiana. So uh, I think I don't, I don't know if you have it up. So um, so you said the 1787 happened? ordinance. Yeah, uh, North the West. Northwest Ordinance. Yeah, yeah. So, so what happened? 1787. Yeah. So you know, then, then you know, they they were like, oh, we're no longer going to conquer natives. Now we're going to go into a treaty with them, right? And this is where that treaty era came into play, right? So like after this whole, you know, taking this this huge part of land. I don't know if you're googling it. Yeah, Rick, if you don't mind me taking a. Uh, um, it's really, it's really hard. It, it's, uh, it's not, you're not coming in clear still. Um, but yeah, like this is, uh, this, this is the whole, um, this whole reading that, that we've done the first 30 pages is, yeah. uh, a lot, a lot of talking about how the, the evolution of the different legal structures involved yeah. in, uh, in terms of like the legal precedents set for, uh, colonization, so it's you have under the crown. The crown had certain policies. Um, you have uh, Johnson Johnson versus Macintosh, right? Is like the first, or uh, you know, sorry, I don't, know if, I can't remember if that's the first, but it, uh, in the in the trilogy, but it's like um, that they were first citing the royal P proclamation. That that was what first determined whether or not a a sale of land was deemed legal um, because this is under under the crown's law at first, but then they they're setting a different legal precedent with the doctrine of discovery, right? Uh, so like that that set the precedent of whether or not uh, whether or not it was legal for these uh, for the colonists to buy and occupy indigenous land um because you know they there's there's so many cases of as as rick was mentioning um egregious that you know the whole the the whole premise of all the colonization was you know was illegitimate but like but there there are particular cases where we even went against colonial law to to encroach upon these territories and and so this this whole reading and the Marshall trilogy goes through where uh, the the different legal precedents set and the dip and and how it played out in terms of like the interests involved. You have the land speculators who are trying to further encroach upon indigenous land uh, via um, use via. Uh, illegitimate claims and and sales that were not necessarily legal under uh, under the crown's laws and this all coincides with with the american revolution and the changing of the legal structure to where the uh the the united states federal system is what was determining what was legal or not in terms of the sale of land and and the occupation of further further occupation of indigenous land uh, so you know, Rick Rick was talking about um, the. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I have it 
uh, here. Um, the the uh, um, I'm sorry, I have it. I have it highlighted, but it's uh, the the uh, the the federal the, the federal government created a uh, an institution to or a uh, um, a few different uh, bodies to regulate the sale of indig indigenous land and, and the further encroachment of the colonists uh, and, and as to whether it's legal or not, because they're playing the, uh, it's a game of diplomacy with with the colonists versus, because they're not trying to stoke further, uh, further conflict with, with the indigenous nations. They're trying to do things as carefully as possible yeah um so uh you know that's that's a policy that they that, that is mentioned in this reading um at, you know what um it being uh it, it being a policy of of being a you know to to the colonizers standards of a fair uh and equal trade something that would not stoke resistance from the indigenous, because as is mentioned in multiple times throughout this reading, you know the indigenous did not lay down at any point uh, and and consider themselves con conquered people. They're they're resisting at every step of the way. Um, so yeah, uh, um, yeah. I, I don't know how much more. No, no. Yeah, that was that was helpful. Um, Johnny, do you have anything to? To add to that, I was trying to find the the uh, the specific parts in the book uh, that he was talking about. Okay, what what? Okay, there you go. I don't know if this is uh, relevant to it because I don't know if we're in are the still in the prologue or if we've moved on to like chapter one because I we've kind of bounced a little bit. I think that most of what we're talking about now, like once we pulled up that map of the Mississippi River and the Ohio River, and that was like a point of contention where like more settlers were driving down the Ohio River and there was a lot of conflict because the, the natives were very fed up at this point. Like, like I said, there was a lot of treaties and kind of like conciliatory relationship. And then like, this is when like, you can see that the natives go like, this is when uh, I believe Tecumseh came into play. Um, Derek, is there anything that you can uh, tell us about uh, would it be referred to as chief Tecumseh during this time? Yeah, yeah. So that was the Shawnee Confederation, right? So and that was in um, this this area, correct? That, that was that, that correct was once that? they got to Il Indiana and Illinois. Yes. So so yeah, once they got to Indiana and Illinois, that's like kind of in the like uh, you know this. Um, yeah. So yeah, once they got to Ind Indiana and Illinois, that that was when they met like you know the Tecumseh's resistance. Um, uh, and then, yeah, it gets into that and then a Andrew Jackson. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's basically, you, I guess we could talk about the different regions is, is kind sure. of important. Uh, like the, the, the colonists broke it down into the different regions. You have the Northern regions, uh, the Southern Cherokees and the Chuck, uh, and the, uh, uh Chickasaw, um, and, and, uh, and then in between, they broke it down into like different, um, different, different regions, which they were, uh, they were doing diplomacy with mm -hmm. uh, of the indigenous, uh, the groups of indigenous. Obviously, there's the Haudenosaunee. There's the you know they called the Iroquois. Um, yeah. 
you know, they, they call themselves to my knowledge, please Rick, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you know, I think that's the, the, the language group is Haudenosaunee, uh, if, if I remember correctly, um, which, which includes the Seneca nation and, um, you know, what, what is called the Mohawk, uh, who they call the Mohawks, um, uh, so, so yeah, like they have these, these different groups and, and once they got to that, the, these groups were also divided in and amongst themselves in terms of like their, their allegiances to whether it was Britain or, or the colonists. Um, and it, in terms of like what, you know, where, where their uh, strategies lied and in terms of like what they would do, uh, you know, they had the, the, different periods of resistance but yeah once they got to the illinois and indiana region that's that's the shawnees that's tecumseh um that's in the later part of this reading as i remember uh and that uh yeah that i think page 26 yeah yep um yeah obviously that's where they stoked uh, that that's where a lot of um conflict was stoked uh, was with Tecumseh and his uh, that that's where they met probably some of the most of the resistance that they met uh, at, at the first part of their Western expansion. I think I think when it comes to chapters or this book in general, I, we talked about it earlier. It kind of reads like a one book. There's a lot of small details in this book. It kind of glances on, but these small details are long. Like Tecumseh's story is like fucking long, right? And yeah, that, that's a whole saga in and of itself. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. So sorry, sorry, Rick. You're just you're, you're still you're still breaking up. Um, uh, yeah, dang. Um, Let's see. Um, do you have like an Ethernet cable, Rick? I do not. I so that bad when you can't hear me. It's tough. It's really tough. Yeah, it's like we're kind of getting half of what you say. Unfortunately, but yeah, here I'll uh, you know, let's go through. So, so we 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 basically kind of like the prologue. What about what, now? What, what, what the, yeah, yeah. Give us give us a few give us a few sentences. See how see how it sounds. Uh, one two three four five six seven eight. Hell yeah, that sounds oh, amazing. That's perfect. It's my it's my headphones then. Yeah, oh, dude, headphones. your headphones are fucked. All right, sub sub subscribe to Subversive History so I can send Rick a new pair of headphones. <laughs> <laughs> no, so as I was saying, yeah, now I have headphones on, but as I was saying that, um, like, a lot of things you read this book, you read, like, obviously, this oh, book no. again. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Um. Is it dust? Is it storm, man? It's cur today's cursed, you know. You got me first, like messing up with my mic, and yeah, and I don't have heat in my house. I mean, like, hey, look, also, everybody, what my kind of just got delivered? And not only did they get my miss one of my orders, but the other order is full of something that I'm allergic to. So amazing! Uh, is it like, just peas? Is it just pea soup? Did they just send you pea soup? Okay, so I'm allergic to peas. Uh, <laughs> the, the two sides that are on the order is like potato salad that has peas in it for some reason and cabbage that has peas. It's from a Jamaican restaurant and uh, there's peas in both sides. So it's like, I can't even eat the wrong order. I, did, I didn't know peas were such a staple in the Jamaican. Uh, yeah. and not, like, 
not like the Jamaican, uh, you know, rice and peas, which is like kidney beans, but like actual like green peas that I'm allergic to. I don't know why. Yeah. Both sides have both of it in there. So it's like not only did they get it wrong and forget my girlfriend's food, but they also gave me food that I is poison to me. Oh huh. no, it's fun. It's cursed. We're cursed. This is a proletarian production yeah. here. Yeah, we. This, <laughs> re this really <laughs> truly is. I feel like we would not be as uh, good a leftist uh, broadcast if uh, you know we weren't having just catastrophic issues <laughs> throughout the broadcast. That, that's for the rich people. They can have the clear, clear audio and the. Hey, you, you hear that, JT? Uh, the they can have the clear audio and the non-poisonous food. Yeah. Yeah, like, uh, like, so, like, in the prologue, um, you know, I feel like that it kind of skips around, right? And it kind of, like, I mean, it kind of mostly goes up into the, uh, uh, up into the revolutionary period, if I'm correct. Um, yeah, and it know, also just it just skips like contact with the English almost entirely. Um, yeah, like, you know, and it uses uh, Christopher Columbus when, and it's just like we're looking at like the construction of the U.S. It would make more sense if we're like looking at like, you know, for instance, like, you know, uh, the counter revolution of 1776 was like a broad, like, you know, covering not just the American, but also like the French and the Spanish, you know, and, and their relationship to slavery and stuff in, in the U.S. But this is, I think, supposed to be a little bit more confined. So I would expect there to be a lot more like early history of like, you know. They briefly go over uh, what the hell are they called uh, the the Puritans or whatever. Yeah, yeah, the Puritans and the Quakers. They go over and I did want to ask some. Did you have a? But what was your full question there, Johnny? I'm sorry, I didn't want to just railroad you. I mean, you didn't quite railroad me. I mean, we did sort of skip the whole like you know conversion the thing that they were about yeah. the, the Christianization. You know, and the reason I wanted to bring that up specifically is because I live here in Pennsylvania, and when they talked about that, they brought up the Quakers. And here they they kind of talked about the Quakers, like William Penn, who's the namesake of Pennsylvania, um, like as like a, kind of like a benevolent colonizer. Like the Quakers were very friendly with the Indians and still like uh, have like a favorable viewpoint till this day or something like that. I was curious if you had anything on that. Yeah, that's a um, very patriarchal society is a lot of what I've heard. Um. <laughs> hey, the can you hear me now? Yeah. I can. You yeah. sound pretty good. I can hear you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it with my phone now. Fuck it. Oh, my God. Fuck what? it. We're doing live. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're doing it. Uh, yeah, we're doing it Fox News style. We're doing it. <laughs> you sound good now. Yeah, I oh know. This is like C-SPAN, you know? Like, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I want to touch that topic a little bit. It's like the the good colonizer. <clears throat> yeah. So there's, I've seen that with like a oh, like Thomas Paine was the only good colonizer or whatever. I don't know what the fuck that means. We're all colonizers. <laughs> like, right, how right. do you say one person is better colonizer than the other? I mean, they all upheld the system. So, I mean, they weren't advocating to abolish settler colonization. They were, they were advocating for, you know, like uh, American, the American settler project. So, well, yeah. that That's kind of like the, the mealy, like, you know, well, this person thought slavery was bad. You know, yeah. they, they, sure they, they may owned, have owned they, slaves, they owned <laughs> slaves, but he he in in private he was like, "Hey, this is kind of not cool that I own these slaves, but I'm going to continue to own them until the day I die." Right, and it like kind of furthers that like weird encapsulation or this weird conception that uh, 
what the fuck is it that that like you know well everybody you know was into slavery you know uh, it's just there wasn't abolitionists back then or there were no people that were like resisting colonization and and i i would like or, to believe that there were but we have we have few examples if any yeah certainly and and okay. uh yeah and yeah exactly and and you know there's so many examples of this of uh you know like you know going down through history you know the first uh you know what what is considered the uh you know the the landmark or the the like uh i don't know if landmarks the, the correct term but the, the the book that really like was the cultural phenomenon of the time during abolition in the united states was uncle tom's cabin and right. it's and it's still a racist book written by a white lady yeah you know, it's like so it's <laughs> yeah. like and you know you go down even into uh into abraham lincoln and, and you know abolition was it was basically a concession you know it's yeah. it wasn't it, you know right. he wasn't a fervent abolitionist you know he was a it was a concession he made right to appease you know a section of the population that was sympathetic to if if to, i remember the quote correctly he he would do whatever it took to keep the union together but um yeah, if beyond... if i could preserve the union with while maintaining the institution of slavery i would i, would. I think is right. uh, is the uh is the quote if yeah. i remember co correctly no that so, sounds about on par from how i remember it also as far as the 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 term settler right today and and, and inferences of, of of today I think a lot of especially leftists get uh very ruffled feathers you know about being called like a a a settler or a colonizer or whatever um I don't right not that I don't think it, it it's it's a good not that I think that like it's a good thing to be or any like kind of harebrained like MAGA communist pat sock ridiculous goofy bullshit I think that like it, yeah I accept that I'm a settler in that like you know it's my responsibility to learn this history it's my responsibility to do what I can right in the same way that like if you say you're a communist right it's within your ability to learn everything that you can about like communist history and like you know being able to critique capitalism right and how you know best to implement socialism and whatnot well if you are a settler right and you don't like the act of of, of the, the this country's existence being a settler colonial project right wouldn't it be within your interests in standing against it to understand everything about it and its history, right? And to fight against that instead of just changing the aesthetic of the settler colonial project to one of stars and bars to hammers and sickles. Thank you. I think that's such an important point that you point out that, that you bring up. And I'd like to, if you guys could bring up on screen, there's this, uh, there's a, um, a, a work by uh, Kim Il-sung, uh, by the name of on dogmatism and uh and formalism as i remember uh in estab in establishing uh blah 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 it's a long title um uh, uh, it, on eliminating dogmatism and formalism and establishing establishing juche in ideological work yes known yep. as, also known as the juche speech exactly yep uh and he goes into like you know, he's talking about career. Well, I think he wanted it on screen. 
Oh yeah, yeah I'm trying to. Um, oh yeah, up. yeah. It, just if you guys could, uh, you know, if it, I, if, I think it would be great. You know, do you I want the actual is, thing or do you want like a wiki entry? Like, what do you the, prefer? The, you know, e- either is fine. I mean, uh, um, there, I think there's a you know, there's there's an online for there's on Marxist.org. I think there's a okay. a, a full uh, script of it, but um, yeah. I think that's a very important thing. I think there's a lot to learn from Juche and um, or Juche. I, I, I I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it cor- correctly, but um. But yeah, I think there's a lot to learn from uh, Kim Il Sung, and and this this text is very important to me because I think it's I, I think it's especially important important for those in the West because he he talks at a couple points about the the importance of uh, not dogmatically applying theory to to what you're doing. You know, you have to you have to custom tailor it to your own your country's. Uh, your country's conditions you can't just you know the, the revolution in the ussr that doesn't look like what it looks like here it you know it's it's very 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 different in, like almost entirely different you could say uh you know in, in these conditions in which we live here in the settler colonies um very different and, and in fact like you could say our conditions here are much more akin to uh you know uh, maybe Rhodesia, you know, formerly Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, or or um, or South Africa, where uh, there there's this, you know, there's there's this contingent of settlers who are trying to establish their own state. And here, they were successful. The settlers established their own state, independent of Europe. You know, you have Canada still has its ties to Europe. It still has its ties to England. Australia still has its ties to England. Um, Australia and, has its ties to America when we cooed their fucking government in like the yeah, 70s that, too. They, they they really like when you think about it, like you're you're the whole Euro colonial sphere acts as a proxy of the United States now, and the United States has essentially taken on the role as the leader of Euro colonial society. Right. Um, oh, and uh, uh, I, before you, we get too far ahead, Sam made this point that like you know i've been thinking about that exactly but not here in the states but in latin america like spanish isn't indigenous either so i'm just trying to make sense of it all in my head and i think that like it's important that we understand that like yes even places like in mexico it is a settler colonial project amlo i'm if, if he turns out to be really cool that's great that doesn't make it like you know less of one yeah yeah very very Latin America is something that I personally don't feel too comfortable commenting on uh, because it's so complicated. And right. I, I like to I like to leave that up to our um, comrades, especially our indigenous comrades. So, you know, in the southern continent, um, I, I, th- I think they they're the voices that should be uplifted and who we should be listening to as to w- what what the solution to the colonial contradiction is. In, in each of those uh, countries, because they're very different. It's very different from country to country. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely like, there, there is very much a settler colonial situation there as there is here, um, but very different, very different. And, and, and it varies from uh, region, country to country, region to region. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, as, you, as all you're you're highlighting these great these great parts here. Like, yeah. I mean, how how relevant is that? I mean, like, I, that I read this text and I'm like, this is so relevant to our. This is what we're doing right now. Yeah, 
And I mean, what I mean by that is that, like, you know, if not for historians like, you know, Gerald Horn, if not for us, like, you know, examining this work by Pruka with like a critical eye, right? Like, you know, uh, we we leave uh, ourselves and we leave like our communities that like, you know, say that they stand against a settler uh, colonial construction that, that, that say that they're against a capitalist construction, right? We leave them open to basically historical revisionism. We leave them open to these like, you know, goofy fucking ideas about like what this country's foundation truly is. We leave ourselves ideologically, um, you know, and, and, and material vulnerable to pa- patriotic socialism. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes, Doug, exactly. Doug, as uh, as uh, as our comrade Camille Sung says in this very text, uh, dogmatic errors is what he uh, refers yes. to them as. Right. Um yeah, very exactly to your point. Um, yeah, dogmatic errors is what I see a lot of. <laughs> um, yeah, applying situations that do not, you know, that's in this text as well, applying situations of other countries to our situation right. where it is not, uh, yeah, where where it's not a- applicable. Which is a uh, fundamentally like anti-Marxist uh, way of approaching like the construction of an economy or a, a country. Exactly, exactly. Right. Um, you know, if we can't copy and paste the uh, lessons learned of like, you know, uh, the, the Chinese uh, Communist Party and revolution and, and civil war they went through against the nationalists or like, you know, uh, the Soviet Union's uh, history of fighting against like, you know, the white army and those loyal to the czarists. The Sierra Maestra are not going to be, you know, uh, applicable. Well, no. I mean, they're applicable <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, there's, there's so much you, you can glean yeah. from those situations that, you know, can accent and influence certain um, certain progressions. But also it must be known that this is an individualized process for an individualized community. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And, you know, like I talked about, I think like when when I was talking about um, The Last of Us and uh, seeing the new uh, what the fuck is it? The, the remake of All Quiet on the Western Front is that it will be people of color it will be these marginalized communities right should there ever be some kind of climactic event those are the people that are going to face it the hardest those are the people that are already at the fringes you know of of this like you know harsh unrelenting society that are going to to be on just like with covid like the same thing that you can see that plays out in covid or any recession that affects the united states it is already the most vulnerable areas of society that are going to be the most impacted by that in the most negative way um you know those in the upper you know uh white echelons of the country are the most insulated from these you know from the um you know pitfalls of capitalism that occur so regularly rick you have a question yeah. Oh, so, did you guys play those? Did you guys play those videos earlier about the we, Marshall we played, trilogy or not? We played uh, a little bit of the first one. Of we just Macintosh, sure. Johnson yeah. and Macintosh, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, are you guys gonna I'm play the fun. other ones? Cause I think, I think um, this is a good time to talk about uh, the history of the Marshall trilogy. People, you know, if the communists want to understand the history, then you know they should understand the history of. Uh, how our sovereignty, you know? Yeah. But, yeah Welcome Raiders from left flank vets. Oh, holy shit. That's a lot yeah. of people. That's a lot of people. <laughs> we got a couple visitors in chat for the discussion. Welcome everybody. That's, Thank you for being here. A lot of people. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I, how would you want us to, to, to go about like, you know, with the, the videos? Well, let's do a quick thing. 
real quick here, just for everybody that came in, we currently have Rick from Decolonized Buffalo as well as Plants Fanon. We are discussing um, The Great Father by um, Francis Paul Prucha. Um, it's the United States government and the American. So are we good? Can we start? Yeah. Yeah, yeah please. Okay, so we have to talk about, you know, um, we have to go back again, pre-1763 um, Royal Proclamation, uh, you know, went before the revolution. And there was um, this, like, uh, land speculator company called the Illinois Wabash Company, and this guy named Thomas Johnson. And I'm going back, I'm, I'm going by this real quick, too, right? So don't, there's, there's smaller details in it, but I'm going through the bigger details. He bought land from natives in, in, in the... In, uh, in, I'm not sure where, but it was from the Illinois nations, you know, but there were illegal purchases, right? Because the, the proclamation uh, happened. So the revolution happened and they were trying to, you know, Thomas Johnson was trying to legitimize his purchases, but nobody would like back him up, you know, in, a, in the government, or would, you know, like uh, vouch for him. Okay. So what happened was that, they decided to file a lawsuit, you know? So what happened was they picked, uh, you know, I mean, like Thomas Johnson already passed away. So I think his son was the one that filed the lawsuit. And the the the, um, the land speculation company, the Illinois Wabash Company, they picked, I mean, obviously uh, the, the son, Johnson, was part of it, but they picked the other person. So they picked both, both sides of the of the courts. Right, so it was the other side was Macintosh. He was a Scottish land speculator, uh, and they both argued—not not argued, but they, it was like a collusive lawsuit where they agreed, you know, on on the terms. So, so the court, you know, wouldn't say, "Hey, you guys disagree on how much land," or "You guys didn't, you know, disagree on which natives," you know. So they agreed beforehand that they bought it from the right natives and the right amount of land, and it was the right, you know, like place. The the, the proportions were right. So the court wouldn't be able to throw it away. So <clears throat> the, the purpose of this court was really to see if the king had, they're trying to see if the king had power to prevent settlers from buying land from the natives. Um, right. But the big thing that we, we need to realize is, you know, Johnson's version of Macintosh, 1823, was there were no natives there's no natives in this court. They never got natives in the courtroom and said, hey, did they really do this, you know? Yeah. So the decision was um, that the royal proclamation was valid, right? And they, that regular regular sellers could not buy land. But, you know, they had to think of a way to, um, you know, they, they, they made a, 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 something called the discovery doctrine, right? Yeah. Where um, Europeans... So when Europeans came to certain land, they held the title to the land, and natives held had occupancy rights. So they could occupy natives can occupy the lands, but they didn't have a title. The title was to the Europeans, right? right? So they just made this shit up. So John Marshall made this shit up, right? And and in in this you know discovery doctrine, the they said that own the natives can only sell land to the discovering European sovereign. So in that case was only the British, right? So, mm -hmm. um, and this, this idea happened globally. So only, 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 you know, the local natives could sell to, you know, the, the colonizers, the specific colonizers. You know, if you're on their French territory, you could only fuck with the French, Spanish, blah, blah, blah. So that's like the big, the big come out of this 
court case was that the discovery doctrine you know so it pretty much gave the europeans the title to the land and the native people the rights to occupy so like what surfing. the fuck does that mean it's like, it's like surf it's like few it's like a feudal arrangement almost yeah and it it was born out of right uh, so in johnson and mcintosh uh johnson was <laughs> johnson Did you break up? Derek, you there? Can you hear us? He just like fell out mid sentence. I'm yeah, not sure. That that was it's uh, showing he's still connected, but it's just the audio just cut immediately um, while he was speaking there. I mean, what uh, kind of leftist uh, you know broadcast yeah, would this be he without joining in on the fun at this point of having audio issues? He he wasn't going to get through this unscathed like the rest. <laughs> Um, Lenin smash. I believe that this doctrine of discovery is actually something that's now being utilized in the post revolutionary war. So I think it's something like from England, but like being now being taken up by, uh, the, the colonies, which are now together as the United States. But I assume that all of these colonial powers operate on a similar, <laughs> on a similar, um, no, no. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the, the discovery doctrine was, it came out of this court case. Yeah. Right, the papal bulls were something else. The Spanish made up, yeah. right? Okay. From yeah. the Catholic Church. They all have probably yeah. their own interpretation okay. of why they can colonize, yeah. how they can justify it. Yeah. I was going to add, actually, also with the doctrine of discovery. Does this have anything to do with like that, like John Locke, like Lockean theory of like, um, oh, or, like I, I've heard that this was used to justify dispossessing natives of land that like they weren't cultivating it properly, and thus that yeah. This, like, Lockean perspective, like whoever cultivates the land more efficiently or something, Lock thus has the right to it. Lock and this is kind of like undergirded a lot of like liberal pop li liberal property rights, like and the way that they were able to dispossess natives. Yeah, he he's known as the four. I mean, if there's anyone who's known as the uh, the father of Americanism, it's it's yep. John Locke, right? I mean, like right. he's he's the inspiration for the the. Like the king liberal of independence and yeah he's the king liberal yeah. uh, exactly um but yeah sorry what uh before i cut out i actually accidentally hit the mute bu button on my mic that i didn't even know existed um but, uh, <laughs> you, learn, you learn something new every day I you know do, i do this is a new headset and i'm figuring it out um right, uh, but, but uh yeah so um yeah, the, the Johnson versus Macintosh. Johnson was looking for a legal precedent, right, Rick? So, like, he was like, at first, he took, he actually, he, uh, so what yeah. in that video, that the, that first video in the, in the Marshall trilogy uh, that's talking about Johnson versus Macintosh, he's looking for, he's digging for a legal precedent, and he actually altered a, uh, a royal proclamation yeah. that, that was, that was set forth uh, by some lords having to do with, laws in india like not having to do with indians as you know as, as the settlers called india. yeah he he took he took a a, a pro, he took a um a precedent for that was set forth by some lords that had to do with india india as in the country india like, uh, like and, and southeast he asia <laughs> yep yeah and he took it and he altered it and he presented it to the uh to the fort uh marshal Right as I as I remember correctly, um, as like a he he uh, he uh, what what what's the word he doctored he he doctored this document to to present it as precedent for him to buy these to to purchase these lands uh, mm. illegally 
uh, um, that that were against the royal proclamation that that would say that he did not have this legal uh, um, ability to uh, to purchase these lands, and then and that's and and so like in his grasping at straws. Uh, and, and like setting a new precedent, he he established the doctrine of dis, uh, discovery as as a legal precedent. Correct, Rick. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was it was it was uh, John Marshall that created because he was the chief justice. Thomas, I mean the the son of Thomas Johnson was the one that obviously tried to legitimize that land claim. Yeah, Welcome. and I think um, his father. I mean, he, but the, the Thomas Johnson that bought the land. I think he. But that by that point, by the time of this court case, he's he passed away, right? So it, it was the son that tried to move forward with the, with the land claim. Um, but I think we, what we really you know have to focus on is the is the outcome of the court case was the big part of it was that the royal proclamation was valid. The federal only the federal government has had you know establishing that only the federal government had the right to make treaties with the natives right and it, it goes back to um let me go let me go into my fucking notes real quick the um the article nine of the um articles of confederation where it says that you know uh only the only congress has the right to the exclusive right to regulating trade and uh I mean treaties, and I think it also goes within the um, it goes the the trade. It was called Trade Intercourse Act, Non Intercourse Act, which means that you know um, only you, sellers needed uh, um, like permits or licenses to do trade with natives, and and if if white people or the settlers committed crimes against native, they will only be prosecuted by the U.S. government, not by native communities themselves. So it kind of also strips away native sovereignty to a point. So natives, natives couldn't, couldn't administer justice. Only the U.S. government could, right? But we, when we go to the Constitution, right? So Article 1, Section 8, it says that Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among several states and with Indian tribes. This is Article 1, Section 8. Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 is treaty powers. Only Congress has authority to create treaties. So you have to know, again, that this is this is this happened. This court case happened after the Constitution, but these rules were already in place, right? Um, when, when uh, within the Constitution and within the Con Articles and Confederation. Yeah. So, right. and in 1790, the Trade and Intercourse Act, Non-Intercourse Act. That's a fucking long name, but you Google that shit, <laughs> right? But yeah. So I understand, uh, you know, and this is, you know, covered in the book and also you just explained it very well that, you know, you, you had these like roughly independent colonies, not necessarily independent. Obviously they had their mother, the mother country, which was England, but they were all operating somewhat autonomous, uh, autonomously in the, in the, what would become the United States. Now they're under one federalized structure and the Federation of the United States is putting all these limitations on what, how they can interact with natives um, because it posed issues for the stability of this new nation of the United States in terms of the trade with them, in terms of how they can put treaties on them, in terms of how they can acquire land um, and, and these things. Now, in the book, this does come off as a little bit um, like like this, this new United States government has the best interests 
um, of the like, like, oh, we just have to, um, you know, get all these colonists in line because they're going to treat the natives really bad. And we need to do this almost almost as a paternalistic way of like protecting the nation or protecting themselves from natives. Um, do you believe that there was more like insidious undertones to this law or do you think it was done with good intentions? No, it, I think it's insidious because there is like there is um oh man I gotta look it up but there is a, a a federal law when back in the day when it said that whenever whenever uh, the federal government went went into treaties with natives it had to do under like good faith the right. best intentions that's actually the quote best intentions good faith but we know <laughs> that there's no good faith best intention in colonization for yeah, real that's that's right. Like that. I was trying to get into that earlier, right? It's like this is all a very careful game of diplomacy, right? Yeah. Because because the colonists were trying to play their cards carefully because they were fearful of of mass indigenous resistance because that at that that time that that posed a very serious threat to them, especially right. with their other uh, uh, other competing interests in the regions being right. the French and the Spanish and, and the British. So they, yeah, they, it's all a very careful game. So the, so the, the federal government was, was trying to. And just to, as to a, delay the, to, to, to contain their colonies to an extent to, to not stoke that resistance from the indigenous. Now, just to contextualize the time a little bit that when, when this was enacted, um, is this, this is prior to the Louisiana Purchase, correct? When was the Louisiana Purchase? Oh, is that like early, early 1800s? That's that's as I remember. Early 1800s. Louisiana Purchase was 1803. 1803. Yeah, that was uh, you know, the court case was in 1823. So yeah, it was after. Oh, but okay. but so the, the French, but the article, but the articles of Confederation, the article, the Constitution, Article One, Section Eight, and Article Two, Section Two, Clause Two, was obviously before that, right? 1790 yeah. was a Trade Intercourse Act, non Intercourse Act. So mm -hmm. we, we have to see that. What was the Louisiana Purchase again? 17 what? 1803. 1803. Oh, so you, U.S. had had you know um, regulations too about you know being in in, in the, uh, treaty making with natives before that. So okay. Right. I just know it gets brought up towards the end of the chapter, and I just couldn't remember if this was if that if this specific court case and the implementations of these laws was prior to that because I know that the Louisiana Purchase caused a lot of like new issues um, in terms of like the indigenous um, peoples that were down by Louisiana and the the relationship that they may have had with the French and the Spanish, which was obviously waning as the United States was growing. Well, not yeah, too I think this is this is where the the Cherokee Nation versus Georgia comes in. Okay. Also, not to bring up uh, Gerald Horn every time I talk, but um, <laughs> I like if, it. if we recall from you know the Counter Revolution of 1776, there was a number of uh, slave revolts that you know were continuously going on throughout this entire period. So especially after uh, like you know this period where the English are finally like you know leaving, they they also then still have to you know continue to uh, you know import uh, more of a slave population and ensures that they can do that as uh, safely as they can while also contending with the fact that the French and the Spanish are still right there to the West yeah. and South of them and the indigenous tribes. And this so is why Georgia was, was enacted as a state, right? Like Georgia was like meant to be like a yeah, slave. It's the Berlin wall. wall. Yeah. It was like, yeah, like the Berlin wall of slavery. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, you know, uh, I think that it's, it's not at all, um, what's the word? Um, coincidence that like, you know, uh, the, uh, Louisiana purchase happens in 1803 and not long after, uh, in 1820, uh, the doc, the discovery doctrine was expounded by the United States Supreme court in a series of decisions, most notably Johnson versus McIntosh in 1823. So it took less than 20 years for them to be like, we need every excuse, uh, legally imaginable, uh, to be able to take up as much land as we can. And, uh, you know, I think that if we recall from, you know, again, uh, the counter revolution of 1776, I think a large part of why England didn't want to expand further west is because how the fuck are we supposed to control this colony if it expands any further west? Right. Yeah. Yep. Excellent. So very well put. Yeah. So I think we have to go to, so, we, you know, this, that, that was the first case. There's three cases in the Marshall Trilogy. First is Johnson versus McIntosh. 1823. The second one is Cherokee Nation versus Georgia. So Cherokee Nation sued the state of Georgia in 1831, right? And uh, so what happened was that the there was a, you know colony of Georgia was created, but they decided to to succeed to uh, to the U.S. So that means that means they wanted to become a U.S. state, right? So what they did was they told the U.S. government, we we, we will become a state if you promise to get rid of the natives for us. And the U.S. Right. was like, okay, cool, man, we'll get rid of the natives. And, but the U.S. government didn't know how, right? Okay. Um, so I think uh, what happened was that, um, um, so we, we have to understand too, the Cherokees actually at that time had a constitution of their own. They actually tried to assimilate into European life. They actually had their own newspaper, which is, it still exists right now. I think it's the Cherokee Phoenix. Right, and um, and they actually adopted slavery, right? Mm. And this is why there's this Cherokee freedmen situation happening, where uh, you know they, you know, you can look up that that situation. But um, but uh, somebody found the Johnson versus McIntosh case, uh, you know, in the eight. Go ahead, sorry. Rick, real quick, because I I think that's a really interesting point that you just brought up, and I just want to ask one quick question. So you said that they they adopted slavery, almost like was was slavery not like a prevalent thing among uh, natives, um, or was that prevalent, or was there a time period that was prevalent, and then when it stopped? Because because if they adopted it, it sounds like they weren't actively participating in it during this time period, right? No, they they, they uh, participated, right? It's it's like they. The Cherokee Nation was kind of, you know, they they, they kind of adopted some Western, like. The, were, uh, were they a member know, of the the five tribes of Oklahoma? The the uh, yeah. you know civilized tribes. Yeah. Right? Yes, so, I didn't want to uh, use that term, yeah, but you know, quote unquote civilized. You know, yeah, because they did slavery. They're like, this is one of the the civilized. <laughs> well, no, that 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 is ex almost exactly it, Pat. Is that like they yeah. told them like if you adopt our farming methods, our clothing, our culture, our religion, and our methods of of you know economic production, yeah, like slavery. Yeah. We'll accept you and you'll be able to keep your land. So these people are like literally willing to do whatever it takes, you know, not to mention like, I, I don't know. Uh, I haven't investigated uh, too much into this, right. You know, about like, you know, was their treatment of their slaves in the same vein or in the same uh, way as like, you know, the, the planters of the American South. Right. 
um, and the, the the barbarism that you know. Uh, not, not to say that there's any form of slavery that isn't barbaric, but like you know, was it seen in the same way that like you know the the white construction of slavery is? I can't say that because I, I, I don't know too much about that aspect of Cherokee history. I would mm -hmm. actually recommend like you contact a Cherokee historian, right? That's mm -hmm. actually part of the, that works for the tribe. I mean, That's I'm sure they have historians, um, but uh, you know, um, I can't really comment on that. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't even want to comment on that. Understood. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Not, not to say like that's, yeah, I, I, I was just commenting person me uh, i was just commenting that i know that's the western narrative that you know like they they were the quote unquote um civilized tribes i know that a lot of freed slaves would escape to the cherokee territories and the seminoles uh, also. also yeah and the seminole yeah especially the seminole. to the cherokee and the seminole territories for you know free for freedom and citizenship in right. these in, in these tribes because uh that you know, it was a better, it was better than uh, living <laughs> yeah. with the colonists. Uh, yeah, that, that, exactly. that was for yeah. sure. So that's a good point too, especially for the time period that we can say, at least say for certain that at least in like, you know, the seminal, like, you know what I mean? They obviously didn't have a similar type of like a uh, slave institution that many of the colonists were utilizing, um, making it so attractive for runaway slaves. So that, that is a good point. Thank you. You know, I, I think that this just comes down to one of those things where it's just like, you know, like any of the other topics that we talk about, whether it's the Soviet Union or, you know, or like the figure and legacy of Stalin, or we're talking about like, you know, any other socialist revolution. I think that like, you know, there, of course, inevitably will be contradictions, you know, within um, the, the, the history that like, you know, uh, we have for these things and i still don't see this as like some kind of uh um insurmountable scar or or, or you know uh, well, a reason against like land back or you know indigenous yeah. sovereignty you know and but, independence but it's good to discuss it with someone that's knowledgeable on it because right, like, right, right. i as like a white guy that's coming on to talk about this like i wouldn't know like what like the common misconceptions are and like some of them are in this book and we can discuss them with rick here because even in this book they bring up like you know the atrocities of natives towards settlers and like you know obviously for me it's hard for me to wrap my head around that because obviously i look at uh, you know colonizers and settlers as invaders and if there is you know a certain degree of def self-defense that includes expelling them from the land that they're colonizing i'm pretty sympathetic to that you know with it right i'm pretty sympathetic to that but also this is going to be a very common thing that i hear from like other white people being like oh land back oh uh, indigenous sovereignty you know that they did this this and that you know that they killed people you know that they had slaves so i think it's important that we can talk about it with somebody that's more knowledgeable than us that can contextualize these things so that we don't get like you know caught up in like i said like the more problematic takes Right. Because even in this book, there is, there, and I haven't brought these up yet. There's like a number of things that I've listed as issues with this book. There's one port, I think it's on page six, where he, he, he refers to um, hostile Indians towards the pe peaceful expansion. And there's times where they refer to the Iroquois as being shrewd in treaty making. And there's, you know, also times where, you know, they refer to hostile Indians, you know, a massacre here, killing children here. So it's like, you know, you want to make sure that you understand that, you know, maybe can zoom out of that colonial mindset a little bit and maybe contextualize these yeah. things more if possible yeah. yes right, so i, I want to get back to this court case so i think yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm court sorry case, 
And then let me go to the other court case because they, they're interlocked together. All three of them are interlocked. But I mean, the, John Marshall was the, the chief justice on all three court cases, right? So he's the one that actually influenced a lot of these decisions. Um, okay. So, so you know, Cherokee, you know, I mean, where, where was I? So, you know, the Cherokees had a newspaper and all that stuff. So somebody found the Johnson versus McIntosh case and decided to, you know, say that Georgia was, had the title to the land and Cherokees, you know, had the occupancy rights, but kind of like, um, kind of like, uh, well, you know, you're not, we're going to put laws on top of you. You know, the, Cher the Georgia, Georgia wanted to put laws to, you know, to regulate Cherokees. So Cherokees, you know, didn't want to leave. They didn't like this infringement, you know, so they, they took Georgia to court. Um, at the same time, we have to understand there was a 1830, the Indian Removal Act, where they told natives, go to Oklahoma, we have land available for you, you know, so they're trying to influence natives. Some natives went, some native communities went, and, and but the Cherokee Nation did not want to go, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, they went to court, and... The question goes, uh, who has the original jurisdiction? So, you know, if they hear the case, if, if the Supreme Court can hear the case or not, you know, and this is where the, the, the justices decided they, were, they had to, like, figure out what Cher the Cherokee Nation was. Was it a foreign state? Was it a, a, a local state? Because the Cherokee Nation were not U.S. citizens, right? right? Mm -hmm. um, so... You know, two justices said they were a foreign nation. Two justices said that they were neither foreign nor a state. And two of them said they were a state, but they were not a foreign nation. This is the where the term domestic dependent nation came in. This is where it was invented by John Marshall, mm -hmm. right? Okay. And this is where he described the relationship between the U.S. and, and, and the Native people between a guardian and, his, and their wards. Right? right, so they already saw themselves as a guardian. We have to go back to like the Johnson versus McIntosh case, where they, you know, the, the Europeans said that they were the title holders, and and the native people just had the occupancy rights. But now they're saying that that we are their wards. The native communities are their wards, right? And they are guardians. So it's interconnected, you know. But to me, it doesn't make sense, you know, because if Georgia wanted to wanted to put laws upon upon the native people, you know, this is why I don't understand about this case. It's like uh, uh, treaties are, are made in Congress, which makes it like a federal law. So a state law does not supersede a federal law. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So this this should have been done right here in this in this court case, right? But it wasn't. So later on, what happened was, you know, the Cherokee Nation lost this case, you know, this, I don't know what that was. And um, Worcester versus Georgia happened where there was a, a missionary named Samuel Worcester. There was another person, I forgot his name, and he was a postmaster. And Georgia law said, you know, they tried to impose their laws on, on Cherokee nations to, you know, so sellers had to go uh, get, get a permit, permit or license to be in Cherokee territory. And mm -hmm. Worcester did not have fucking permits. So he got arrested. He was convicted to hard labor, you know, and Worcester complained to the Supreme Court that, you know, he was unlawfully held. So uh, what happened was that was the, what was decided was that Georgia could, could not impose laws over Cherokee Nation because they had no legal authority. It will violate federal treaty between the federal government and the Cherokee Nation. 
and um, this this will like it's like the supremacy clause, which means that you know, like I said earlier, federal federal law supersedes state laws, right. and um, you know, um, so what what happens, you know, is that this court case does, you know, um, talk about. Uh, uh, you know that the Cherokee in in the decision it says the Cherokee Nation is a distinct community occupying its own territories with its own boundaries, which is you know the logic, laws of Georgia can have no force, and with the citizens of Georgia have no right to enter, only within you know the Cherokee permission, and or in conformity with these treaties and with the Act of Congress, you know, and the whole. You know the whole thing between natives and, and the U.S. government is is only you know um, vested in the U.S. government. This is this is in the court case decision, right? So a parma says that they the, the Cherokee Nation is a sovereign nation, but the caveat is is that they try to put like um, that they are a domestic dependent nation, and you know going back to Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, and that we are awards and there are guardians which this is very colonial because now it's affecting us now with our court case and our sovereignty right. you know we cannot make treaties we cannot make diplomacy with anybody outside the u.s we can make some economic deals but it's very limiting and it's, it's kind of equivalent to like puerto rico not not comparing puerto rico but they don't have their own you know i think they have right. their own government but they're not they're not like Sovereign, you know, like independent. No, no, no. They, they they have right. a uh, uh, what is it, a governor that is selected by. Yeah. Um, so I very, think, yeah, it's very similar. Think, Guam has the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I, th Guam I think, you know, territory. so so they we are, are under like uh, this stewardship is really fucked up. So I I describe it almost like a, a sovereign apartheid. Like we're sovereign to a point, right? Like just like you know, some 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 like back in the day, some citizens. We're not, you know, some people were not citizens, or you know, black people were like three fourths back then. Like they were like it was kind of right. They were kind of Americans until later on, you know, when you know black people got became citizens and they got the right to vote. Like Native right. Americans weren't weren't citizens until 1924. We're not even there a hundred years. We're like at 99 years right now, right? right? I'll go from the Native people being citizens of of this country. But there, there you see. Okay, so this is where I'm gonna talk about. Uh, the colonial theory right now, because there you see the, how the U.S. government sees uh, Native people as a guardian and ward. Now you have yeah. to understand when we talk about the colonial theory is that when you talk about making a socialist U.S. right and, and, and you know settlers or, you know want to talk about uh, a, a communist party controlling this country and then the Native people will be autonomous over there to decide. This is this this still. You know, it's the same shit. It's the guardian ward shit. Like we're the guardians, you're the right. wards. You be over there autonomous. We'll get you whenever we need you. Whenever we need your decision on some shit. You know, yeah. it's the same concept. It's a colonial bias, right? So these people, this this Marxist, this Western Marxist, Amer especially American Mar Marxists, don't know this history. A lot of people don't even know that there's federal Indian law. Right. This right. is a fucking law. This is like the whole departments. There's people that study this shit. I went to fucking to law school for this right yeah. and it, you know that. so you know it's one of those things that 
And I, I literally went to law school to see how it fits into, into decolonial theory. I'm not practicing anything right now, right? I did it just for this. And right now, when we talk about decolonial theory, we have, we, first off, we're talking about abolishing the US states. We're talking about abolishing settler nationalism and you know putting the sovereignty, full sovereignty back on these native nations. And how does that look like? You know what I'm saying? And so yeah. so we can't just read, you know, like just Lenin and Marx and Stalin, but, you know, like, I, I, yeah, you can read them, but they don't address our specific contradictions now. And you have to know our history. And this is why we, I recommend the history book. This might not be the most perfect history book, but no. it's a start, right? Every, right. every, every, every uh, native community has a historian Right, and they can tell you their history even better than any book can. Right, from their own communities, because there's history within among communities. There's it's not any any book that I know from family from family history, a family mm -hmm. verbally. You know, so we have to know that. You know that we all have our history, and in order for us to learn, we have to learn, you know, the history of colonization on this country. And I hope people read this book, and they, tr they try to take out just how that relationship between the US and the natives played out. Because we also have to talk about, you know, there was eras of, of federal Indian policy, which is right now we're covered, I think three. So the colonial period, which is from the start to 18, 1789, the early Republic, 1789 to 1830, and the removal era, which is right now, right? 1820 to 1860. Right, so we we cover three areas or three eras of Indian uh, federal Indian policy or you know European uh, Indian policy, and after the the Cher uh, the Worcester versus Georgia, we have to understand that the Trail of Tears happened, right, where the the U.S. government came in and removed forcefully removed the Cherokees into Oklahoma, and a lot of fucking people died. Uh, right. From what I, I see here on Wikipedia, right. it says four thousand died. Yeah, a lot. Right. Right. So, all these um, all these questions I'm posing to you are rhetorical in a sense that when I'm asking you, was this benevolent colonization? Did they have good intentions? You know, I wasn't asking that to be like, I actually believe this, and I need you to tell me. But I just kind of want to have the broader conversation about how the book kind of frames it a little bit, just so you can dispel it. But then also, all those questions I'm asking, they're pretty much very concisely answered when you consider the trail of tears that came not 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 long after correct yeah so after like, this was also the reservation era right and there's a whole history behind that why there was reservation era and again this is the styles of of colonization different from spanish like i said we, like we said earlier two hours ago the spanish tried to assimilate the, the indigenous and the black communities and and the british and the americans tried to like push away the native community, like you go over there, you go in your designated areas. So yeah. the, the, the conversation is totally different, you know? So you can't compare colonization like here versus Mexico, it's two very different things, you okay. know? So, yeah. I, I assume that the third case that you wanted to talk about was uh, Worcester versus Georgia? We did that. Oh, okay, my bad, sorry. We did that, uh, we, we, we did that with the whole, like, you know, there we are our own distinct community, with our own boundaries, you know, and the, the Worcester coming in and, you know, complaining that he was un unlawfully held by the state of Georgia, and the state of Georgia did not want to release him, right? Yeah. But you gotta understand too, when was the Civil War, like in the mid-1800s? So the whole conversation about state rights and, and 
you know, a federal policy or federal, what, what the federal government actually has the right to do upon states, it kind of slowly, you see the beginnings of this right now where the states are thinking, hey, we can do whatever the fuck we want. And the federal government is like, no, you're not, right? So, so later on, like, obviously when it comes to, you know, uh, slavery and, you know, all that stuff, like the, the Southern states wanted to maintain sl the slave economy while, the, you know, the federal government want, wanted to kind of wanted to end that we talked about earlier, right? Yes. So, but, you know, that's, that, that's a whole different conversation. But I think we have to understand that when, it, when, I, when, you listen, when you pay attention to my Twitter or my episodes, we have to understand where Guardian and Ward, I keep saying Guardian and Ward, right? Over and over again. But it comes from the Cherokee Nation versus Georgia case, and you can see how fucked up it was. But that mentality is still there within, within you know, non-Native people, within, you know, settlers that uh, are communist, right? They still, like, just like the noble savage thing with the, the whatever savage tropes, you know? Like, yeah. this, this, these, these things still exist among regular people. Just like yeah. back then, the settlers wanted to, they wanted land, they wanted to, you know, hunt in Indian lands in the end of the, Accidentally, accidentally, but sometimes purposely, like killed native people. You know, they 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 were part of the machine of colonization. You know, they didn't need the state to tell them go over there and colonize. No, they did it themselves. So right yeah. now, like we have, you, you know, American communists saying, you know, we want to create a communist state, but not thinking about the contradictions within, you know, uh, this this country in Canada and Mexico. They just think they're going to copy and paste from fucking you know, Stalin or fucking Lenin or whatever, Mao, and you can't do that shit, man. Yeah, right? that's that's not how any of this works. <laughs> it's completely ahistorical, right? It's not historically materialist, and, it, and it's not a... And it's a, a complete misunderstanding. You know, it engages in erasure, right, Rick? Like, it's like, this is erasure. Like, it, it is, you know, it doesn't matter if you, you know, brand yourself a communist. If you engage in erasure, you know, you're not... Right. Doing, and, and it's and it's crazy how the the uh the um the inconsistencies of, of people's applications of these ideas because you know you talk about pa palestine and you know it's everyone right. clearly understands that situation they're like yeah right. you know like that's not israel like israel's not real it's not a legitimate state it was it was contrived i think it's really europeans easy. and yeah. uh sorry go ahead Oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. I was just going to say, like, uh, uh, you know, like this, it, it's a fundamental problem in how people conceptualize these things because, you know, they don't, they, they're erasing the colonial contradiction from their minds. And, and what, in doing that, they can see themselves, as, you know, it's a self-indigenization also. Like, you know, they're like, you know, I am the person of this continent, you know, even as, even if they're not indigenous. I'm not indigenous to this continent. You know, right. I'm indigenous to Guam, but like, you know, like this is, you know, to, to me, I, I see this as in a native, a national liberation movement in, right. in terms of like a revolution on this continent. It, it shouldn't be an idea of like, oh, we have to create this new state that that represents everyone all of the racial uh you know all of the ethnic backgrounds equally it's like no these are nations that already existed here before colonization and and it's and it's a matter of liberating these nations it's you know like they they you shouldn't think ussr 
even though there were anti-colonial, you know, honestly, these people don't even understand the USSR very well because because uh, Lenin even had this policy of de-Russification, you know, like de-Russification of the former Russian Empire. Russia uh, imperially occupied all of these nations that were not Russia, and and there had to be this policy of de-Russification, like a, of of not having Russian. Uh, a Russian occupation of these other nations, you know, they, these other nations, they were not Russian. They were, you know, uh, uh, right. and, and it, it's like a, it's a misunderstanding of even that, that movement a misunderstanding of even China, China being a multinational state. There were mm, multiple, right. multiple nations within China. China is not all Han Chinese. Like mm. it, it is a, a multitude of of nations within this state um, and, and laws applicable that are only applied to the Han ethnicity, which I believe is the majority that like, you know, the other minorities, uh, you know, do not have to follow. Exactly. Uh, I think the most famous one being the, the one child policy that like, you know, only applied to the Han ethnicity. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and not even to say that, either of those cases are directly applicable to this continent because right. I, I think the, the 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 movements that are more akin to this continent are those of Rhodesia or Algeria where it's a national liberation front yeah. to, to liberate nations from colonialism and, and you know it, it gets complicated though it's it's very complicated this is something that has to be fleshed out but you know, I think that's incumbent upon all of us to develop a re revolutionary theory that is uh, applicable to this. But uh, to to go back to the to the text that I referenced earlier with Kim Il Sung on dogmatism, uh, on the elimination of dogmatism and formalism, um, uh, he he mentions uh, that that it has to be attuned specifically to this history and to the history of this continent. And I think that history. That, that we should be embodying is the history of those of Tecumseh and, you know, all of the indigenous resistances across this nation. It's, you know, that that is the legacy that we should be, that that is the history and the legacy that we're learning about here in this text, uh, in what we're reading now. And, and you know, that's what we should be embodying, um, you know, because that, that is the rich history of this continent of resistance is... Uh, those that is that of indigenous resistance and, and national liberation. I do, I do also want to say that a lot of our treaties kind of start off by acknowledging our sovereignty as native communities, and it goes to like from time immemorial. It's always again and again from time immemorial, from time immemorial. So our sovereignty has also always existed. So it's not our sovereignty wasn't created. Even even the, the British know that our sovereignty wasn't created with them. It has always existed, right? Do these treaties like these treaties say from time immemorial, over and over again? You right. know, many, many different treaties. So we have to understand that when people say, "Oh, it was, sovereignty is a European concept," no, we've always had it, and, and they acknowledge it, which I think I think is a kind of like a double-edged sword, right? Like these treaties <laughs> and the wording are gonna come back to they're gonna they are. The, the, the spear, the, the, uh, you know, so our sovereignty is the cornerstone of decolonization. 
know what I'm saying? So like, unlike the native people in like Latin America, they didn't get all these sovereignty and, you know, governments or anything like that. They were just forcefully, aggressively, like assimilated into, into, into uh, colonial society. And they are gonna have to, to have real heavy, hard conversations about what sovereignty looks like. Because a, a lot of people that, you know, especially Chicanos and Mexicans, they like to distort our sovereignty by saying that, you know, for example, that we get we get registered with the US government. I've never registered with the US government. I actually went to Comanche Nation and said, so-and-so, so is my family, I had to prove it. And then they go, okay, you're enrolled. So the Comanche Nation was the one that I got, I got my citizenship with. I wasn't with, I didn't go with the US government and said, hey, I'm native. I think, I don't know how Canada works out, but this, this, it doesn't work like that with us, right? I don't even so, know if Canada, a lot of Canadian uh, or tribes that exist like within the you know purported boundaries of Canada, I, I think more than a few of them don't even have any treaties with Canada. So I think, you know, I think, you know, it's, I think it was one of those things that we have to acknowledge within, within sovereignty. And sovereignty is a, a contradiction that is not known by by fucking uh, communists on the West, right? Everything's about class struggle. It's never about like sovereignty. You know, it's mm -hmm. never about cultural. It's never about colonial. It's always mm -hmm. class, class, class. When that 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 does a play. We all live in a class fucking warfare capitalist system. Fine, I acknowledge that. Like I, I don't I do I do not deny that, right? But at the same time, we can't like overlook like what's the foundation to you know our our, our sovereignty is our foundation to our nationhood right well, I mean, and like, like like the 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 good settler that i am um i have plundered this term from uh, red falcon uh and i, I believe he, he called it uh like the stratification of class and that you know class can be stratified right when when examining it and that everything should not come down to class it's kind of like another way of saying basically like intersectionality right and that like you know um there the, there will be stratifying you know layers of class like you know within things right and that everything will not just purely be one thing and it just kind of like brought me back to when you know i was still a trotskyist and asked about issues relating to um you know like to to uh, misogyny you know and sexism and racism and things like that and i was given answers that like you know were kind of dismissive and you know uh were, were you know attempting to you know wipe all of that away and what are you left with it's class it's that like you know the the central part of it and i feel like that's kind of just like a just a brutal ignorant kind of you know um messy way of doing it Right. You know, I, I, I think that um, what the hell is it? There, there's uh, all of these things like, you know, like sovereignty. Right. And colonialism that are missing, because at the end of the day, it's like, you know, you can't reduce this down to just purely class. This is like an immutable characteristic that like you will always and forever be a settler. Yeah, or, yeah uh, I think. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, like, I, I think. Uh, it's really important for us to imagine. And this is what's hard because no one has really written a comprehensive revolutionary theory for this continent. Like, I, I think if anything, like, you know, we have indigenous resistance and we have black, black nationalism, and that's as close as we've gotten. Um, right. it, but like, yeah, like, you know, I think we need to imagine in the future is like, 
you know, why can't we think of it the way as like, you know, you go to another country, you establish citizenship, you know, maybe you're not indigenous to that country, but you're still a citizen and you can be guaranteed economic and social rights uh, as a citizen. And I think we have to, to imagine, I think it's easy for, you know, the, the colonizer settler class to, to get defensive because they see it as like, uh, you know, there's this counter annihilation theory that, that people remark on. It's just like, oh, well, the, the indigenous are just going to kill us. Kill white us all, all, genocide. All us. Exactly. White genocide. Exactly. <laughs> and, and it's like, it's just like, why, you know, why can't we imagine like, you know, me a, a, as not being indigenous to this continent, you know, I'm black and, and I'm descended from slaves. Right. Um, but, but like, you know, and we're, we're entitled to our own nationhood here, but like, oh, you know, that, that, that's all also has to be, has to be worked out with with indigenous nations and the people whose land this this truly belongs to and and you know i i i don't see i i don't uh you know i i think it it needs to be imagined how like we can just be a citizen of a nation that we're not you know we don't have to be indigenous to this land to just be a, a respectful citizen and live by the culture and and the uh um by the ways of the people who and the laws of the peoples whose land this rightfully belongs to you know i i, I, I want culture to... already was like that at one point like there was a point in time where like i you identified more as like a new jerseyan or, or a virginian or something than you did a, i'm a citizen of the u.s exactly. and, and as far as whiteness is concerned i am pro-white genocide all right <laughs> oh, Fucking oh, no. white... I'm not hang, hang on hang on hang on hang on hang on hang on whiteness right is one of the few like you know social con it's a social construct right race is a social construct yeah exactly right yeah. it's a it's a social construct right whiteness right is one of the few things that can ebb and flow like a fucking tide okay you can be russian in like you know the 1950s and you're a slav you can be russian in the in the 90s and suddenly you're white Right. You can be Russian in like, you know, the early 2000s. Right. You know, and you're Slavic again. Right. And now you can be Russian and be part of some Asiatic, you know, despotic fucking culture. Whiteness. The Italians were not always white. The Irish were not always white. We should abolish it as a social construct. Yes. Race is a social construct and not real racism and the effects of it are very real right but they reverberate the fucking hardest on people of color they reverberate the hardest on the people that are excluded and considered the other the the not white because whiteness is one of the few social constructs where it is not tied to any one thing it, it is not tied to any kind of immutable characteristic it changes throughout time people and whole social groups and cultures can be added and removed yeah name, then, name another name another race yeah, that have, can do that we, we have a we have a comrade um by the name of q and he he made us such a good point that i uh, i really resonated with that that white people need to do need to reconnect with their ancestral roots and and discover their real identity you know their identity that is not whiteness like whiteness is a construct it's like no you are you know you can be irish or you can be italian and you know you should connect with that and you should connect with that ancestry because it's like it's the uh, the whole construct of whiteness that that even gerald horn notes that like you know in the early days of colonization that it was first based off of religious affiliation 
and and you know they had to expand it into this idea of whiteness in order to make this whole colonial project work uh, in order to get more bodies yeah you needed more bodies if you only had catholics you didn't have enough people to colonize so you needed more people you need to include the protestants uh, the Protestants needed to include the Catholics. You know, you had you needed to include all of the, anyone who had the same skin color as you. So yeah, like I think I, I think that Europeans do need, do need to in some ways reconnect with their their ancestry, and then also like yeah, strive for uh, as colonizers. You, you you know, you if you strive for decolonization, then you're striving for citizenship under the rightful governance of this continent which is which is the indigenous governance and and that's you know what why does that sound well you know i i understand how you know you know the ignorant you know uh, white genocide the people who cry white genocide can be like oh they're going to do the same thing to us that we did to them and but it's that that was never the case. The indigenous oh, we co- we cover we cover that we cover that in two episodes. It was yeah, episode yeah. one twelve and episode one fifteen on the on the podcast. One we 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 um um reputed uh what's his name Hinkle and Maupin not not Hinkle it was Maupin right and his little right. gang and the second one was Haas and Hinkle where Hinkle actually said. After the revolution, whenever whenever settlers become proletariats, they will become indigenized, which is fucking. No, fucking that's not it. that's not how that you works. Know? So, but I think I think going back to the, the you know I want to go back a little bit to the eras of like federal Indian law. Right now, we're in the self determination era, and from the right. 1960s to present, that's that's the era, and we have to understand that within that time. We have gone very, very strong, not just economically, but also politically. We do, you know, try to push for laws to be, you know, enacted. We uh, we assert our sovereignty. And there's a situation one time that happened when I was in San, San Antonio. I used to go study group uh, with some anarchists. And first of all, I, I do not agree with anarchist theory. I think it's straight garbage. And the reason I say this, <laughs> right, I will say this. I, I, I'm telling the story right now, is that they, they talked about having no federal government, no central power, and they talked about, you know, towns having their own laws, blah, 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 right? But then I talked about, I said, hey, man, what about if there's a, a settler town upriver, and then downriver there's a native town, and, and the settlers are polluting too much, and the settlers are like, what the hell is going on upstream, you know, can you stop polluting so much? The anarchist said, they shrugged, they literally just shrugged. Right. And I said, that's kind of fucked up because, you know, if you go to like actual history and where, where native community, there was the Pueblo of Isleta in New Mexico. And there's a court case called City of Albuquerque uh, versus Browner. Right. So the 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 the, um, the city of Albuquerque was up upriver from the Isleta Pueblos. And there was a um, there was a. Uh, there's a you know a, a certain uh, level how clean the water should be for the state, but the you know the the, the pueblos had their own standard which was even higher, right? right? So that with the court battle, the pueblos won, right? So now right. that now the city had to abide by the pueblo standard of how clean the water should be. That shows you that we asserted our sovereignty and we made a whole city follow water water clean clean you know. How water, how clean the water should be, and yeah. it, you know, but of course, the anarchist is just shrugs, right? right? I'm not saying this is a perfect system right now, but I'm saying that this is, you know, we we are pushing. There's whole uh, it's section. A precedent. Of, 
Yeah, there's a whole section of native law where it talks about the EPA. The EPA has a uh, policy about like having native communities set their own standards within their their communities of how things should be handled, right? right. So like you know, this is us promoting our sovereignty. It's also like the ICWA, the Child Welfare. Well, Welfare Indian uh, Act, and uh, there's like the Indian Arts and Craft Act, and there's like the laws to protect, you know, uh, eagle feathers and the Native American religious rights. You know, all these laws that got enacted since then, right, is to make our sovereignty stronger, and our economies are stronger, our tribal governments are stronger. A lot of us are pushing. A lot of us are creating court systems, creating laws. There's like now we're pushing for now with the whole missing and murdered indigenous women. Now the conversation about sovereignty because now we can't prosecute non-natives because there's a whole law that started in the 1800s how we can't prosecute non-natives americans so now there's a conversation of we should prosecute against native i mean non-natives that don't that means that that you know that we like where's the jurisdiction the jurisdiction conversation comes in you know so we have to i mean i talk about i have a whole episode about the oneidas the oneidas their tribal cops were, were arresting state cops and vice versa, they had a whole weird situation going on. I think it was in the '90s, right, where they were arresting each other, the cops, tribal cops versus state cops. And I think, and them creating a court system, them creating tribal laws. Now, you know, right now, I think the highest is like uh, ten thousand dollars or five years, five years in jail or some shit like that for non-natives. But what if somebody commits murder? They only get five years. So we have to talk about all these things, you know, within jurisdiction. But, you know, but as I said before, as I, you know, I said in the podcast before, we have a system right now where we, we have economies that, you know, um, employ millions of people. We control infrastructure, right? I said this before, like, that, uh, for example, the Navajo Nation is almost 300,000. They control infrastructure, government, economies, you know, and we have uh, 574 uh, nations across the U.S. controlling infrastructure and economies. Like, if the U.S. Co- you know collapses, we are here to take over. We can take <laughs> over. We have experience. We have We've been experience. through worse. <laughs> yeah, and and we right now we are hiring non-native. We hire most of our hirees are non-natives, right? So yeah, in maybe our economies, you can get me a job when I'm done with law school, right? Yeah, and I think. <laughs> And our economies are nationalized. Our, our casinos are nationalized. You know, nobody owns the casino. They have to be communally owned, right? They, 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 um, uh, um, they, um, fuck, I can't remember words right now. They fund programs, you yes. know, within, within the, the tribes that they, you know, that, you know, and, and they make our lives better. You know, some, some, you know, I, I'm not a pro like, Oh, I love casinos, but I'm not against them right now. Cause they are helping us right now. I, I mean, whatever, I, I we have, whatever means they have of like, exactly. you know, affording Re-reall- programs for their people, reallocating some of the stolen colonial wealth back into their community. Right. Through, right? through your, your aging, probably racist grandma and grandpa. Um, so there's a question in there. Yeah, I think you highlighted it. The question about yeah, identity. Yeah. How would one family so mix to go about that? I'm equally Irish and Japanese too. I think I think that the you know somebody's a seller that, like for example, in the decolonial state, like uh, if you're not from a native community, then you you're you still considered a seller. But I think you don't have certain certain like powers. Like I I do think like things should be. Uh, nationalized within a decolonial senate 
right? I said this a, a thousand times on my podcast. I mean, we, we talk about the means of, means of productions, right? What, what, yeah. why, why would a communist party control the means of productions and, and the native people just go be autonomous over there? That's still right. guarding the ward. Right? right, they will still be controlling the resources under decolonial decolonization. You know, we would the native people and a black African sovereign states, uh, a, a sovereign state, like say a sovereign state would be, you know, controlling the means of productions. You know, it doesn't mean that that sellers would have less rights. It just means that you know, I mean. It's, it's really tricky because under under communist theory, everybody should have, you know, like the, the workers should have the, the means of productions. But under this case, the workers have not been, uh, have been, I mean, the, the, you know, the good intentions, the good faith is not there. Yeah, I right? guess then you can get into, sorry to interrupt you, Ricky, yeah, please go, uh, just to. Sorry. Yeah, so I think let me finish. So I think I think we have to talk about what decolonization means. Is the mean means of production goes to this decolonial senate, and they you know they take care of everybody. We're taking care of a lot of people right now. Like I said before, non-natives work for native native communities, native tribes, and casinos or other economic ventures. You know, and I I don't know. Like I think there's a bias or like projection by by sellers to say you know in decolonization we would be like apartheid or we would be this, you know, right, but right, in, the, right. in the first place, let's be honest, you know, like I, whenever, like I have these conversations, I do feel like I do see your points, but whenever I read Fanon, I think to myself, fuck it. You don't even belong here. Right. <laughs> like Fanon makes me like not give a fuck about people's feelings. And he says you shouldn't give a fuck about people's feelings. And I'm not giving a fuck right now. I'm being honest with you. Like, yeah, you can <clears> stay here as long as you respect our sovereignty in the, in the decolonial state, but don't think we're going to oppress you. We're not going to impress you, man. Like in, in a real deco decolonial state, we're not here to oppress. We're here to build a society to, to abolish seller colonization, seller nationalisms, and to create a whole new society together. I think I know what they're getting at, though. And I, I like as somebody that's mixed, right, you know, and my family from, you know, a, a colonized country, India, you know, is, is Anglo Indian specifically, which means that like I come from people that sided with the fucking colonizers. Okay. Um, and like, you know, as somebody that like, you know, is, is mixed, I, I don't concentrate so much about like needing that kind of attachment to like, you know, um, like whatever culture that I didn't grow up in or, you know, a culture that like, you know, I uh, don't necessarily or wasn't necessarily like raised with. I, I think of it more as like I can appreciate certain things that like, you know, maybe came from certain parts of my family. But it doesn't necessarily mean that like, you know, um, I, I, I need to uh, what's the word I'm like trying it's to find where, here. where you're kind of coming to grips with national identity. Right. Yeah. Um, Cause like, this is like where I feel like a lot of this comes around to is like, St like a lot of people tend to cite Stalin on the national question. Right. So, yeah. um, so it's like, it comes down to national identity a lot of the times. And it's like, you know, uh, what it comes down to for people like that, the, the question that came up with the, the listener um, is like, you know, you have to seed your previously held colonial national identity. And then right. what does that mean? Where do you live specifically? Do you live on, you know, in, in Rick's case, Comanche, if, if you live on Comanche land, you know, you won't be, you know, in the Comanche government, but, you know, you'll be a citizen under Comanche law and under Comanche governance. So like, you know, it's like, just like 
if I were to move to Norway, I'm not a Norwegian, but like, you know, and, but, but I'll live under Norwegian ways of governance, you know, I'll live under Norwegian governments, governance. I will ideally have, you know, not that Norway is like a socialist country, but like, uh, you know, like I would abide by their ways of, of, of governance. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, it's like that's that's something that you should expect as someone who's not indigenous to a land that you live on. You should just expect it. Yeah, I, I should abide by the ways of living of the of the rightful, like uh, rightful nation who whose land this belongs to. Uh, you know, it's like if I were to move to India, I should expect to abide by India, uh, the laws of India. If I move to China, I should expect to live by the laws of China. You know, and, and but I should also expect economic and social rights, and that's completely fair. Um, you know, I think a lot of the times this comes down to this like purity test of like, oh, well, are these indigenous nations communist? You know, it's like, oh, is this going to be a communist? You know, let, let's By first definition. <laughs> exactly. Let's let's remember that these 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 indigenous nations were practicing collectivism before Marx even was born so right like like you, you i, know, I scream from all, the rooftops all the time how proud i am to be from new jersey and i say like nj pride worldwide unironically every time new jersey comes up right if new jersey is like you know suddenly returned to like you know the the you know lenape, the, the hadasani the the lenape you know whichever right i will still be proud of where i am from i think we i come from a beautiful state in a beautiful land i think i come from like you know uh, an, an ethnically and culturally diverse wonderful place with wonderful food you know and for it to be like you know rightfully returned to like you know the the people whose land it it is and belongs to right whatever they want to call it i'm proud of that i love it here you know, like, right. and and you should, and you could be a proud citizen, right? You exactly. Know, yes, I would be a proud and, citizen of Len, of Lenape fucking territory, I, I or whatever it is they would want to call it. I would call it that, and would like scream from the rooftops. Yeah. I am proud to be from here. Yeah, like I'm I think on Wampanoag oh, land. Uh, yeah, know, I'm, I'm on the land of the Wampanoags, and I would love for this land to be returned to their governance and to live under their laws. Uh, you know, as you know, as. Uh, uh, I will say that I fully have faith that they will govern this land far better than any colonizer ever has. Yes. <laughs> and, and and that I, like I I will fully agree to anything any governance any laws that they put forth I will live by that and as I would respect any law of any peoples whose land I would move to if I would move to if they ban nicotine uh, I won't be happy about it but I'll accept it. Exactly. I, I have a comment. I don't think indigenous people would ban. I have that. a comment. So <laughs> What we have to understand when I talk about the eras, I talked about the eras earlier, is there's a lot of different eras, right? And this within these eras, there's different there's different policies towards native people. Okay, so we have to acknowledge that. So now we have to also acknowledge so when whenever Marx, Stalin, Lenin, Mao, 
when they were when they were alive, they lived during very specific eras of uh, you know U.S. policy towards Native people. So Marx lived during around the removal era, removal of the reservation era. So you know you get think about uh, Lenin and Stalin, the allotment and assimilation era, right? And even even Mao all the way to, I think he died in the same of these, right? But he still lived in the reorganization and the termination era. So these are really, really shitty times for our sovereignty, right? I mean, they none of them wrote, you know, um, Native, Native, Native people in the US have sovereignty. They didn't write that. And I'm not saying that their work is not important, it's super important, because I love, you know, their work. I think it's really good to understand. They really painted a good picture about what time was in that region. And economically, you know, politically, uh, but I think when it comes to just like Derek said earlier, um, people haven't really wrote a good analysis, a Marxist analysis of, of the U.S. And I'm actually working on that right now, right? Because it's, it's really, I think, it's it's what's lacking. I mean, uh, who was it? I think it was was it Mao? There's like there couldn't be no revolution without the theory, and there can be no theory without you know revolution. Yeah. So and it's like one one I of it's, I think it's on practice. Yeah. I think it's on practice, right? And um, so I think it's one of those things that we have to understand that. Um, so I think that's from what I'm saying is just like there there's no understanding of of our history and Indian you know Indian federal law is fucking complex as shit. Even gaming law hurts my fucking head. Like you could know about the Indian casinos and the laws they they fucking there's different types of uh of gaming type one type two and type three and they fall all fall under different laws there's like the pl two uh 280s laws you know that give states jurisdiction over indian communities which i don't fucking abide to this whole whole history of states trying to chip away at like um native sovereignty right i mean there's this all these crazy laws or so you know of, of like uh the child uh, indian child welfare act laws that you know religious laws they're so complex and because of the u.s education system a lot of people even some natives don't know their own history especially non-natives because they teach you about fucking squanto and putting the fish in the dirt you know, fish heads in the dirt, whatever the fuck they taught. I'm trying to remember what they taught us. Like, and then they, they really went back, really, you know, Pocahontas, and they make you put a feather and a thing in your head for Thanksgiving. Wasn't shit. she like oh. 12? <laughs> I, yeah. But the, the thing was, like, you know, they make you do stupid shit about native history, and they don't really, they don't really teach you anything like, like uh, with substance, right? So right. I think one of my friends that, you know, he grew up in Oklahoma, he said he's, he's, he's not native, and he said that before they graduate high school, one of the things they do is they all apply to see if they can get enrolled in a local tribe. Jesus Christ. It's fucking weird fucking shit they do, right? So I think, I think you know, these are things that we don't, I mean, even this is Oklahoma. There's like 36 different uh, nations there, right? In, in that state yeah. because of, you know, the Indian removal. And I think that, you know, even people that live with the, amongst natives, they have like this like bias, like, oh, they don't do anything. They get the money. They get money from the government. They don't have to work, which is fucking nonsense. Like, I don't get money from the government, you know? So I think, you know, and it's one of those things that all these biases, all these things we have to do, you know, with, with the unfuck ourselves, you know? And I think it's just as toxic and just as ahistorical as uh, the, the welfare queen uh, narrative. 
that like you know uh there are entire like communities of color you know black and like you know uh hispanic communities that like you know just basically uh live off of the welfare system and whatnot right yeah, so I, I, I do I do want to clarify one thing. I think under a decolonization, like sellers wouldn't become citizens of tribal nations. I think they would be citizens of the decolonial states. They would be right. under jurisdiction of the local na native communities, like you know, with their laws, whatever you know, whatever gets decided. I can't, I'm not, you know, I don't, I can't see the future, but whatever I, I would imagine, like local native nations would have jurisdictions over laws right, right. and i think uh, they, i think the settlers will be citizens of a de decolonial state but not the native nations uh because that would be tricky you yeah, know not, what I'm saying? Not, uh, yeah when i say citizen when i mention citizenship i didn't mean like tribal membership yeah yeah you're you're now yeah. <laughs> yeah, no yeah, I, 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 I saw I, comments i saw comments yeah. in, in in the chat and I saw like somebody wants to be would be cool to be citizens of it. No, you wouldn't be a yeah, citizen yeah. of that nation. You would be a citizen of the decolonial state. That's how I imagine it. And the yeah, native people right, yeah. would be citizens of the decolonial state and their respected native communities, right? Like I would be Comanche Nation citizen and a decolonial state citizen at the same time. Like I am right now. I'm a I'm I'm a Comanche Nation citizen. I'm a U.S. citizen and I'm a Mexico citizen too. So I, I can be triple. It's possible. These things are possible. Just like black people would have their own nation it will be whatever they call their nation if they want to call it new africa whatever but you know they will be uh citizens of their own nation and they will also be citizens of the de decolonial states you know so they can you know and then vice versa with other settlers around the around the uh, you know the the country but i think we have to clarify that because i saw some comments in the chat and i was like whoa you know thank you so thank you for clarifying that yeah because i did not go <laughs> add enough nuance to that obviously um yeah, like that's that's something that obviously is something that that we here us for can't we're we're not a um we're not a uh you know a a um a, a conference on decolonization of the of of this of this continent uh, that that's a whole thing that has to be that has to be worked out with the indigenous nations and and then the black nation of of this continent and a whole agreement i love when when gerald horn cites the uh the lancaster agreement and it's like this is going to have to be a whole agreement for for this continent that has to be figured out as to what 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 the governance of this this continent looks like i imagine it's going to be a confederation of states right. of, of indigenous states uh that that all have uh have uh collective uh and in certain to certain degrees uh um uh governance over uh, over the over the continent and and there's going to be have there, there's going to be have to be a whole uh uh agreement um as as to what the governance of this continent looks like um yeah as rick is alluding to uh that that's a whole thing that has to be worked out none of us here are are uh of course like can represent um the indigenous nations um and and what their interests are and what the whole thing is going to look like but yeah to, to give people a loose idea is like yeah like we will all just be citizens not tribal not, not nation members <laughs> not members of the we're not going to be invited to the to the powwows like you know it's like it's like we're not we're not going to be invited to the cultural like you know gatherings uh you know it's just like we're going to have to abide by the laws of of the land um you know it's, i think that's what i meant as well yeah as well i think um 
we had a recording recently with me, Derek, Amalian from Radical Narrative, and um, Yamo and, and Red Falcon, right? And Victor. Um, I think we <laughs> talked about sellers, the sellers in, in their place, because there was like some shit going on online, and there's a, there's a lot of misconceptions. And so we have to understand that like Native people have been putting this information out for years, right? And I think that we need to just, I'm, I put a lot of resources out for people to read and there's a lot of mistakes that can be done. And there's there's whole decon the, the article decolonization is not a metaphor. It's, right. a, it's a really good, like, do not do this shit in decolonization. <laughs> Right, they say don't do what Johnny Don't does, whatever the fuck those those little books, you know. And I think you know don't don't do this shit. So don't race shift. Don't don't claim that class struggle is the only thing. You know all these. You know don't claim you're adopted. And I think it's really it's really hard. You know I think there's a lot of things to learn. So you can't just you can't just read like I said earlier Mao and Lenin. You also have to read the perspectives of Native people. And just because they're not Native, I mean, they're not because they're not sorry, just because they're not Marxist. It doesn't mean their, their, their opinions are valid. We are criticizing seller colonization. And that's a whole different conversation. I don't know if you want to get into that. You know, So there, there I, is a I, bias. I, I think ahead. that maybe that is a conversation that deserves another three hours. <laughs> yeah, we've been doing a while. <laughs> um, <Thank you. laughs> but I, I, do, I do hope that you know, it's not too long before uh, we record uh, you know, another episode with uh, you and Derek reading chapter two. Uh, regulating trade and intercourse. I'm, I'm we might sure. be able to do two. We might be able to do two and three. The, the chapters aren't super long, and yeah, this one ended up being pretty long, right? Because we had to get into the Marshall trilogy, and, um, yeah. and obviously we had technical issues. Well, this is this is standard for us. We usually go about like four, four hours, hours. <laughs> anyway, so we expect for this. The last time we we had Rick on, I think we went over four hours. So yeah, this is, this is a standard <laughs> procedure for us. So. Excellent. I love it. I love. It. We had a great conversation. I think. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, good. We, I'm good. I'm good. To stop if you guys want to. Yeah. No. No. I, not like not like stop. Like stop. Said, not I, like a hard stop. I just mean like you know, in terms of like topics that deserve like another three hours to cover. Um. You know. I. I. I want to. I want to keep that one in the can, so to speak. Certainly. That. That's a good idea. That's a. That. That does deserve its whole. Uh, a whole conversation I'll, in and of I'll, itself. Also, Derek, I, for a second, I thought you were gonna say something along the lines of like, you know, that cookout will be exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> so I do, I do want to say, I do want to say that there's a comment on on the chat, something about pl plurinational state. I think yeah. I don't agree with that concept, and in a concept where you know, there's Bolivia or Venezuela, mm -hmm. and you know, where especially like for like, for example, Bolivia, that coup was more recent, right? right. Yeah. Where there's there's like settlers or right wing people that just took over, you know, the the evil Morales government, and Morales had to go into exile into Mexico, right? right. And this is why I don't believe in a plurinational state because if you believe in plurinationalism, that means the settlers get the same amount of power as indigenous communities, and I don't believe in giving settlers the same amount of power as uh, the, the sovereign communities. I think there should be a, a decolonial Senate where all the, all the native communities have representation and the black sovereign nation, and they get to talk about decolonization and how that works. Because the moment you mix sellers into that mix, there's always gonna be coups. Right? right, so right. plurinationalism can I can wipe my ass with that shit. Right, <laughs> that I'm sorry, like not to be mean with people, but like I, I don't I do not believe 
to let sellers or they're going to have good faith. We don't okay. need to be, we don't need to be like, Hey, you're going to, they're going to have good faith. Fuck it. Like, I, I'm going to be honest. Like whoever keeps talking about plurinationalism, obviously does they're, they're, they're fucking dismissing the coups that are going on in, in South America right. with that are right wing. This, this is what the U S does. They promote right. right, right wing coups and, you know, and, and, and uh, color revolutions to promote the, you know, capitalist states, which broke, promote colonization via proxies i'm not i'm not for that in a decolonial state there's no room for that shit well, straight uh, up I'm sorry. You, I'm you sorry. Know, oh sorry you go pat um no it's, it's, all, it's all good i was just gonna say that like I mean, the only reason that like venezuela is even able to avoid like having their their government ultimately like you know ended in coup under chavez is because chavez rooted out like a lot of the military that like you know wasn't loyal to him yeah, but the, here, here we have the case too of there's more settlers. That's like a contradiction I tweeted about today. There's more settlers yesterday, uh, more settlers than there are native people here in the U.S. And of course, you know, if we decolonize the U.S. or the North American continent, I will say this right now that the bourgeoisie abroad still will exist. Right. You know, the, the, the bourgeoisie in Europe are still going to be fucking doing their fuckery and they're still going to, you know, promote coups. They're going to promote, you know, the, the, you know, the, the destruction of the, of the decolonial states. That's not going to stop. Total global uh, communist decolonization needs to happen globally, 100% for, for full liberation. We cannot let the bourgeoisie in Europe just keep surviving. They need to be abolished as well. And, you know, it, it sucks. We need to fucking pull some Romanov shit on them because they, they're not going to stop. They're not going to stop, yeah, right? This, this, this is something that um, it's really hard to talk about, it seems, uh, in these left spaces because it's like, um, you know, you don't... It's hard not to be just immediately labeled a race reductionist, but there's, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a verifiable... It's a very clearly, like like visible fact that you know it's just like it, I, I think it's and it's even a, a uh this is it's it's hard to talk about because of the vestiges of liberalism in this whole idea of like one person one vote it's like well you know europeans distributed themselves across the globe you know honestly like in, in a way that they, they outpopulated indigenous populations on entire continents you know, from from these two continents in this hemisphere to Australia to, you know, it, it's, you know, when we talk about global capitalism as a problem, like it's it's quite clear that what what is the monolith and hegemony that is the capitalist power and it, it's Europe and its colonies and it's, you know, which is represented in NATO and then also in, you know, it, the, you know, the NATO affiliated countries, you know, Australia isn't necessarily a NATO uh, member, but it's a NATO affiliated country. It's essentially a, a, a vassal state of the United States, uh, which has taken up the mantle of, of Europe. And, you know, these populations, you know, you know, if we go by one person, one vote kind of like idea of, uh, of, of socialist democracy and, and representation and government, uh, it's, you know, we're still talking about European dominance of land outside of Europe, like, you know, domination of, of European settlers uh, of land outside of Europe. And that's not to say that Europeans won't be a part of these societies. You know, we're cut, we, in a, in a lot of ways, we are where we're at. And, and like Rick and I say all the time, it's like, 
you know, as soon as we start talking about these things, pe people start imposing on us their own ideas of like, we just want to kick all the Europeans out of the colonies. And, and that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, is expropriation, though. We're talking about expropriating Europeans from control over these lands. But right. that doesn't that doesn't mean we're going to export all the Europeans back to Europe, you know, like, you know, we, yeah, as long as as long as they're not fascists, like, you know, and, and are trying to do kind of revolution, you, you know, I'm sure any any indigenous native person like myself, like it's like you can stay, you, you know, it's fine. Like, just abide by the laws, you know, uh, right. abide by by the reforms. But at the end of the day, yeah, the, the problem of global capitalism is is also a problem of of European colonial dominance over and hegemony over the world and, and especially of the colonies, uh, and and that's not to say that you know that Europeans don't have revolutionary potential. That's what I would like to see the most. Honestly, is like I, I would love to see uh, more of the European settler colonial population, you know, join us in in, in the anti colonial struggle. It, that's honestly it's like that that could be the biggest game changer it's like I, I really wish it weren't the case where that that gerald horn points out that the history has been of of the settler colonial class being a class that collaborates with the bourgeoisie it's just like that's been the history i i really w i really would like for us to build a revolutionary movement that could end that and, and that and, and to bring uh, you know the European colonial class into the the into the decolonial movement. Um, right. You know, I, I think there's ways to do it, and, and I think that that could be the future if we build the right revolutionary theory and and movement and organizations. Like if we had CPUSA, if CPUSA could just, uh, you know, not to not not to start calling people out. But like if the communist parties of these countries, of the, of the settler colonies, PSL, CPUSA, uh, Communist Party of Canada, you know, whatever they have going in Australia, if you guys could just take a hard line on decolonization and be a part of the National Liberation Front for Indigenous Peoples, as as happened in, uh, in Algeria, I, I mentioned in the last podcast we did with Rick, uh, in Algeria, there are plenty of French Algerians who dissolved their parties and became a part of the National Liberation Front. There, there were French people who were fighting for decolonization, and that's what we need. We, we need, you know, that, that, you know, that that's ideal is having these, uh, you know, the colonizers fighting to 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 end colonization, um, and it's possible. It's happened. Do you want the, to add the, the, the book, the book, by the way, is uh, if if anyone hasn't read um, uh, "A Dying Colonialism" by Frantz Fanon, uh, he, yeah, he writes about the 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 Algerian Revolution. Mm -hmm. Do you want to add anything, Pat? No, the the thing that I was going to say has been like kind of blown past. I don't want to like. I'm sorry. I thought I. Uh, no, you're fine. You're fine. I appreciate it.
Right, well, if it's just going to be dead air, I'll just. I know. I think. Yeah, I was going to see who's going to talk next. I didn't want to talk over people, but okay. I think. Yeah, this is. I agree with Derek. I think. I. But there are people in some of these organizations that, um, you know, do understand this, and I think. But at the same time, there's people. But uh, and I hate to say this person's name, but uh, I will. I have to say his name. Uh, for example, like I had. Rainer Shea on my podcast, right? And Rainer, right. I thought Rainer understood this, blah, blah, blah. But then I think, Nate, you know, like he was influenced by other settlers to believe he, you know, Rainer started attacking Gerald Horn for some reason and whatever. Yeah. Oh, he was like, oh, this person over said, yeah. Oh, you went over that already, right? We went over the article that he wrote. Yeah. Okay. So you, there you go. Like you say, like a seller, I, I thought he understood. But come to come to see, he didn't really understand. So now he's flip flopping. He's like, "Oh, I support this," but then he has like really bad ideas at the same time. And to me, I'm just like, "What the fuck's going on here?" So I think, while you know, I think parties, the parties themselves, need to say, "Yes, we support this this decolonization and these theories and blah blah blah." But they have to be concrete. It can't just be like, "We support land back." That's fucking Vegas shit. Right, that's fucking garbage. They have to say we support decolonization, and this is what it looks like according to native people. Blah blah blah, and and black in the black community too, because you know, uh, black sovereignty and black nationalism and black nationhood. Right, so I think there has yet to be a communist party to um, to do this, but there are people within these organizations. I mean, there's people within all of these organizations. Even DSA to understand this. You know, DSA is one of the softer socialisms. You know, but I think that doesn't mean that doesn't mean to them. But you know, let's be honest. But I think you know, I think there's people within these organizations. But I think they also feel that, that since they're not native, they can't really advocate strongly for it. But I think they should. Just because you're na not native doesn't mean you, you can't advocate for decolonization. You should be at, at, even more vocal about it because you should be unfucking the system that your that your ancestors created. Right, so you should be saying, "Yeah, we should do this. Yeah, we should do that." Not no, I mean, say, "Hey, let let native people talk about it, and like only they can talk about it." No, everybody should be fucking talking about this. Like, like I said before, even if it isn't your ancestors that took any part in like the construction of the U.S. settler colonial state, like if you are against it, like you should be vocal about that. You you should take part in that deconstruction of that the same way that like you know. Even though, like, you know, you have always been poor, your family has always been the working class, your family has always been the, the proletariat, right? You know, you, you've never been bourgeois or something like you would still seek to dismantle capitalism, right? And for I'm sure there are more than a few of you that like out there that like, you know, do come from money, but like you are sympathetic to these beliefs, I would assume listening this far into this, that like, you know, feel like, well, what can I do to like, you know, help dismantle that? Yeah, so that's the, that's the issue we have at hand right now. So, um, I think like this is like, this is a conversation that can last for days and hours. Yeah, and once yeah. revolution does happen, it's going to last years and years. This conversation with native governments, and like I said uh, before, it's you know it's the real vanguard. It's not a communist party. It's uh, all the sovereign nations, the indigenous and the black sovereign nation that will exist after decolonization. They are the real vanguard to liberation, not some party that's going to be guarding a ward, right? So, right. so uh, I just want to say thank you, both of you, again, so much. 
uh, for coming on. Uh, we'll make plans to, uh, you know, have another one of these regarding chapter two. And uh, chapters. I want to see how, how long they are. Possibly two and three. Uh, looks like 13. If we went to, if we went to, um, Two and three would be up to like 64, so it would be like 34 pages. All right. Does that sound good to, to you guys? It would, be yes. about the same, it would be about the same as we did this time. Okay. Sounds yeah. great. I, I promise no technical issues from God, from God willing. Don't make promises. Don't make, let's not make promises that we can't keep. Because <laughs> I'll set the expectation low and over deliver. <laughs> oh, can I, can, I talk, can I talk to you guys after we stop recording? Yeah, of course. course. Okay, thank you. Just uh, stay in here uh, and uh, yeah. oh, after I end the broadcast, all right? So hang on one second. So who do we got? Who do we got? Who do we got? Uh, we got Squid Ear. We got Famous Horse. We've got Ben, $27. Who do we feel like, chat? Whoever answers first wins. Wins what? Whether you win it. Who we rate out to? <laughs> pretty much who we send our audi current audience to their channel. Pretty much. Well, you've 27. not seen twenty seven yet. Did Bernie what, Sanders set set that standard? The twenty seven dollars. Is that what that? What? I remember that being a thing. <laughs> I think that's the like Sanders the lowest uh, donation or something. Uh, yeah, that makes sense that you can make and not be a super pack. Something like that. <laughs> All right. Law Salam, everybody. Stay strong out there. Give Horse my regards. I'll be in, in a very uh, important meeting. Be well. Have a good night. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. All right. I'm going to end the broadcast.